What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rebunked. My name is Scott. I'm here coming at you live from uh, the Last American Vagabond Studios here in historic Franklin, Tennessee. And I know I always say this, but I got a fantastic episode for you tonight. I'm I'm really, really dead serious on this one. This is going to be super cool. Settle in. It might be an extra long episode. I'm ready for it. Uh, I got a whole list of things to talk about tonight, so it's going to be super cool. But first, just real quick, guys, I'm going to do some calls to action, as they like to say in the business, right? So, First of all, I want you to head over to Rebunk.News. Rebunk.News is the website. If it's your first time there, there'll be a pop-up where you can sign up for the mailing list. I want to encourage you to sign up for the mailing list. That way you get uh, email notifications about any upcoming live streams, events, anything like that. Um, I got some big stuff I'm planning, some cool things in the works. Um, so make sure you're on the email list to get any uh, notifications about that. So right now we are live streaming to Rockfin and Rumble. And then Matthew over at ContentSafe, contentsafe.co, helps me then take these videos and gets them to my other video platforms, Odyssey, BitChute, and Bandot Video. Um, if, you want any, if you're a content creator and you want any help reaching larger audiences and you're tired of uploading to each individual platform, let me know. I can put you right in touch, right in touch with uh, Matthew himself or go to contentsafe.co. Also, audio podcast. So make sure you subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's like iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict. That's what I use. Um, subscribe and then also leave a review, five-star review, and uh, you know, nice comment about the show. I'll try to shout those out as best I can as we go. Um, a good way to support the show financially is over on Subscribestar, subscribestar.com forward slash rebunked. You know, as little as five bucks a month, you get the, some premium posts. I'm just doing like... Oh, look at this. This is hilarious. So the last uh, the last bonus episode, yeah, it's been a minute since I've done one, but it was about we need more ad hominem. I was just joking around about how we just need to talk more trash on people. But that's just my own little rant and just very fitting to tonight's episode there. But anyway, um, social media, t.me forward slash rebunk pod is the social media. Uh, probably best way to stay in touch with the show and get like, you know, non-algorithmically blocked and shadow banned posts about the show. And then, of course, at the bottom is any for value for value donations. Another great way to support the show is over at the t-shirt shop, rebunk.news forward slash shirts. There's a link to the t-shirt shop at the top of the main webpage there. Um, all kinds of cool designs, you know, great way to support the show. Um, moving right along, Truth TRS is a heavy metal detox spray, just five sprays a day. Helps absorb and eliminate all the heavy metal toxins that have absorbed uh, in your body over time. You know, all the things that they spray, stuff in the water. Um, it's a really great product. I've used it off and on many, many times over the last few years, and it's just like, you can really tell a difference after a couple of weeks of being on it. Um, TruthTRS.com. Learn more about that. And then new sponsor, guys, Autonomy. Uh, if you go to the link in the episode description, there'll be a link to Autonomy. If you click on that link, you go through the Autonomy Obstacle Course to see if the Autonomy class is a good fit for you. Um, that also helps support the show. If you're looking to gain more skills, you're looking to uh, – kind of find more autonomy in your life, whether it's like entrepreneurial stuff, develop more sales skills, all kinds of different stuff. It's just uh, an incredible value, incredible offer that they have. So just learn more at, over at, uh, I'll say getautonomy.info, but also if you're going to go check it out, just use the link in the episode description. All right, guys, that's it. That's it. I promise. I promise. And without further ado here, we're going to bring in uh, the man himself, Mr. Tony Myers. What's going on, Tony? How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing tonight? Oh, thank you so much, man. Thank you. I'm doing really, really well. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Um, I'm going through your logic course right now. Oh, uh, I, I, I'm like on uh, week four and uh, I've gone back. I went actually, there was like a 
week gap in between uh, the first one that I listened to. So I went back and let's do it again. So I'm trying to like really absorb and take in this information because when I hear you on the show on Grand Theft World talking about the concept of intellectual self-defense, like the first time I heard you say that, I was like, God, I never even really thought of it that way. Like these are new concepts to me. You know what I mean? And even though like I thought like we'll get into it big time. But anyway, welcome to the show, man. Like, like, thank you. <laughs> just wanna, I just want to give you props, man. I just want to give you props for all the work that you guys do over there because it's uh it's really amazing. Like over the whole the whole Grand Theft World community is just like this. Yeah, man, such an action packed thing. So I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So go ahead. I wanna, you're getting you're you are cutting out quite. Oh, quite am a I a little bit there? So I just want to give you a heads up. I'm trying to. Oh no! Along, but it's sort of meshing together a little bit. So. Oh geez. Okay. Well, let's see here. We got everybody in the chat. Let's see if I have my. Let me know how is it. Uh, and everybody's I can my discord maybe let me try that right. yeah that little that little static's coming through again a little bit yeah a little bit of static coming through but that's all right that's all right what's up everybody in the chat can you guys hear Actually, let me let me see if anyone's in chat let me go back on discord if you guys can if you guys are having audio issues in the chat let me know here because we're just kind of running and gunning here we're doing it live we're trying to figure this out as we go <laughs> That's a playbook okay. from the GTW sign. That's how we do it. Okay. We got a uh, Skeletor. We We're good. What's up, everybody? What's up, Opus Cosmic? We got Hamza in the house and his multiple personalities. You got to watch <laughs> out for that guy. I got to keep an eye on that guy. Uh, so Orwell, what's up, Orwell? How are you? Skeletor, what's going on, everybody? Hopefully, it's not on mine. Let me double check here. I have a very solid internet, so this usually isn't an issue. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. They say that sounds good. Like, there's a little static on my end I'm hearing, but... Uh... Oh, there you go. You're back. Okay. Can you hear me now? There we go. Yeah, it was... Uh, for a little while, I was able to kind of keep it together, and then it just all meshed together. And the okay. So, we're good. We're good. Okay. We're good now. Okay. So, well, I was just basically just uh, talking you up a little bit, just telling you how much I appreciate all the work that you guys and you specifically do. I'm going through your logic course. Um, I've learned you said so something about intellectual self-defense. I just want to comment on that real quickly. Yes. Uh, I yes. got that from a man named Dr. Leonard Peikoff. He's yep. the sort of the St. Paul to Ayn Rand, uh, Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy. And so when I went through very early on a lot of his course and uh, history of philosophy, which is now available for free um, on YouTube, which the Ayn Rand mm -hmm. Institute made available for free, uh, he mentioned that um as part of his course now he runs two courses a history of philosophy from thales to whom and then he runs another one called uh introduction to logic i think i got that from his introduction to logic course many many and that was given in 1972 73 and it's interesting to hear his lamentations his critiques his uh you know his perspective on society back then because it mirrors a lot of what we're experiencing now just we're experiencing a much faster time scale and so I picked that up from him. So to give credit, uh, he used the term intellectual self-defense to describe what exactly logic really is. Mm -hmm. And we talk about martial arts as a physical form of self-defense, but no one really talks about intellectual self-defense. And we're really quite wide open, more so than any of us could ever imagine or believe in regards to how much propaganda um, can uh, unfortunately seep in, permeate our being, and, and actually manipulate our actions on very much a subconscious level, which is famous with Bernays sort of weaponizing that from Freud and early behaviorism. Yeah, psychology. man, for sure. And, and, you know, you talk a lot about just the idea of definitions. Like these are all new concepts to me that I didn't even have a language to describe before. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's so deliberate. They don't want us to know how to, to philosophize or use these basic axioms to understand the reality around us. Like these are, these are foreign, these were foreign concepts to me just up until a few months ago. 
uh, when I started diving in and it's very deliberate, I believe. And so, so just unpacking this stuff has been a really, really cool journey, man. And, I, and I've got a bunch of questions here for you and I know we're going to get deep in deep into it here, but I want to start off with maybe just, um, I hear you guys kind of allude to your, your, your background on the, on the show uh, on Grand Theft World a little bit, but I was kind of curious, like what is your formal background with uh, philosophy? Like I hear you talk about having an interest at a very young age, that sort of thing. But what, what was your, what was that like? And then what, how did you get red pill? Was that before? Was it after? Was it during? Did your background in philosophy help you understand once you were started to look at the world a different way? Like, what was that process like? It's a big question. Not a big question. Okay. So, so yeah. What, <laughs> no, it's a good question. It's a very, it's a big, I'm just, yeah, just trying to find, yeah, I'll, I'll stick to highlights. So yeah. I'm actually not trained in philosophy. I'm okay. actually trained in uh, business marketing. I went to the Smeal College of Business, which is at Penn State. Rich went to Penn State as well. Ironically, we sort of it was sort of a serendipity that we both just happened to go to the same university, obviously 14 or 15 years apart because he's, he's older than I am. But uh, yeah, so I, I went to um, the Smeal College of Business at uh, Penn State University. Obviously, that was right around the time of the Sandusky scandal. And that sort of awakened me to some um, pernicious de dealings that no one knew was going on. You had the second mile. You had the Thon sort of event that was run as part of the second mile to raise money for the second mile foundation for children. It's sort of like it is obviously extremely disturbing uh, what took what transpired there. And this, you know, sort of uh, piqued my curiosity, if you will. It's not quite the right way to describe it, but mm. into what's going on. Um, things didn't seem to match up with the reality I was experiencing, especially around the campus. There seemed to be a lot of clandestine action. There is a lot of uh, senators uh, and congressmen that had houses around Penn State. Interestingly enough, not indicting anyone. I'm just saying there's mm. a lot of weird activity. And all of a sudden those properties went for sale. And I get it. They didn't want to be associated with anything, whether they had anything to do with it or not. But it was just a lot of moving parts. You know, one um, an investigator goes missing uh, around that same time that was investigating Sandusky, as well as uh, he was also investigating some mafia dealings in Philadelphia. So we don't know if it's, you know, how much of it's related. Just a lot of weird coincidences were all happening at the same time. Now, granted, I wasn't there at the time. I had just graduated, but that was sort of fresh on my mind. And sort of putting it all together was, you know, made me sort of question my reality more than I would have considered. Now, going back in my past, um, I grew up uh, as a Roman Catholic. I was, uh, my parents were very devout and are still devout. And it was a pretty strict environment. And, you know, that left a sort of indelible impact on me for better or for worse. I went through when I hit my teenage years, I rebelled against that and really haven't stopped and I rebelled against it by using philosophy. I, the individuals I ran with at the time were all sort of like the, the smart kids of the class, if you will, you know, the, the honor students, the AP, the A track, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I was not quite up to that ilk. They were just naturally high IQ individuals. And I tried to participate with them as best I could, because that was my, my friendship circle, if you will, as the kids I hung out with. And as a function of being a part of that friendship, I had to be able to hold my own intellectually at a younger age. And um, that sort of put pressure on me to force me to learn more so because this sort of came natural to them, but it not, did not come natural to me. The ability to speak um, uh, coherently and cogently, that was difficult. I was very introverted. I was unsure. Um, and so there's a lot of different experiences when I was younger that sort of catalyzed my interest into philosophy. Um, but that didn't really manifest until late college and then post-college. And in college, ultimately what happened was I was sort of just 
secular atheists, you know, I figured science would answer our questions and that, you know, I was, uh, had communistic leanings because, you know, once I abandoned faith in high school, I immediately jumped to communism. I was against, you know, Bush, obviously, and Cheney in the Bush years. I would protest against them. My friends and I would do that. But we sort of embraced this idea that capitalism and, you know, uh, crony capitalism and capitalism were essentially equivalent. And unfortunately, in that critique, we sort of jumped to this this other extreme, which is like embrace communism, embrace atheism, embrace scientism. And I had to break free of that and wrestle free of that in college. And I, I luckily did so by embracing an empirical sort of mentality, meaning I'm just going to experience my world. I'm not sure anyone has quite the right answer about, you know, what what the world is, how we experience it, what our perceptions are, how we conceive of the world. And I'm just going to go out and just get a bunch of different perspectives, you know, and I want to meet as many different people, want to experience as many different things as possible, especially in college. And that led me, ironically, to become even more frustrated and depressed because there's more relativism. There's less sense of truth and more sense of just meaningless, hopeless. There's no sense of even attempting to know anything that could mirror truth at all. And that really got me into a bad space. And that's when I turned to the only thing I could turn to at the time. I do not recommend this to people. Uh, but I uh, embraced uh, the psychedelic dimension. And that's when I embraced uh, uh, quite heavily doing um, mushrooms and LSD at, at quite high doses. I don't recommend this. And in dangerous sort of situations by myself and dark, you know, I really took it seriously. This was not a joke to me. And I did it as a form of trying to explore the depths of consciousness and the mind. And in so doing, I had very powerful experiences that were a little bit too powerful and sort of blew my mind open way too much. And I sort of had to find a way to ground it again. And it really allowed me to break free of my preconceived notions about the world, my ideas about science, about faith, about all these different things. But at the same time, it didn't provide me with the basis to understand how to reconceptualize those ideas. And that's where the trivium came in. Classical education brought me back to something where I could finally find a fulcrum, find a grounding to my perspective and my experience. And that was massive. And that that came from my experience in Tragedy and Hope through meeting Rich Richard Grove. So Yeah, that's awesome, man. And then that was kind of the next where place I was going to transition to. So what was it? How did you and Rich get teamed up? And uh, what, you know, what, what did that look like in the beginning? And how did you guys' working relationship kind of evolve from there to where it is today? Yeah, that's a very interesting story. Um, we had a colleague of ours or a former uh, colleague of ours um, we were working with at the time. And I became enamored with this man's work. And um, he really was interested in the psychedelic dimension and mushrooms from a historical perspective in Christianity and in religious use. And for that reason, I sort of, he ironically was sort of working with Richard um, uh, just as a function of shared interest and also rec shared recognition that there's something going on in the world, a sort of globalist agenda, a new world order, whatever sort of terminology we want to apply to it something is acting to take away human freedom not just in america but all over the world there seems to be this movement to some sort of like grand collectivism but we couldn't it was sort of tertiary nebulous hard to define slippery when you tried to like sort of squeeze it and give a proper definition to it so in that milieu um of experiencing that i got serendipitously connected to rich through this former colleague of ours and because of that, um, I'll never forget, I heard a podcast that was um, Brett Benant of the School Sucks Project. Mm -hmm. It was Richard Grove of Tragedy and Hope at the time. And they had Steven Zarlinga on, who was the American Monetary Institute and wrote the book, 
which I have uh, the hidden or the lost science of money, the hidden science of money, one of those two. And it was very interesting because sort of serendipitous out of nowhere, they just, you know, let's just call him and see if he comes on. They did. And I'm like, man, who are people having conversations like this? Mm-hmm. Who are people willing to sit down and have like a, a round table with an intellectual on a whim about very complex topics of, in regards to definitions, definite, what's the definition of money? How is money being used? Uh, you know, what are the, the qualities associated with the money? How can that be manipulated? You know, and getting into this idea of this conceptual space to try to ground our understanding in something more tangible in our, in regards to definitions and how it relates to actual reality. Just, I'll never forget that. It had a really left an indelible impact on, on my perspective. And from that, um, how did I even come? Somehow I, uh, and I can't remember, I just ended up on a phone call with them. Oh, I guess. Oh, I remember Mark Passio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he runs a podcast. I don't know if he still does it. What in the world uh, is happening or something like that? That was the, the original name of his podcast, I think. He um, just got started and he was running, he was getting the uh, Free Your Mind conferences started. And these are in Philadelphia, Northern Liberties, where I actually used to live. And so I was, this is perfect. So we went up to the first Free Your Mind conference. And by function of me being available, I got to uh, meet Mark Passio and drive this colleague of ours up to. Uh, Richard Grove and his wife's studio um, to do some filming. And that's where I got to first meet them. So it was sort of through this interaction with Mark Passio, um, which I don't have a relationship. He's, you know, I've met him sort of uh, a couple of times, but don't really, you know, uh, know him that well, um, besides appreciating his work. Uh, that was sort of how I got to meet Rich. And so from there, we now was history because that was in like 2011. And after that, we just, I, Everything happened so quickly, it's hard to put it in perspective because I met them. It was an instant sort of we recognize we're on the same wavelength, excuse me, with everything when it comes to our sort of our ideas on faith and psychedelics and religion, our ideas on government, our ideas on individual freedom, our ideas on New World Order and conspiracy. Everything just meshed perfectly. And I, and then again, this sort of weird serendipity when it comes to being connected. The fact he's from Pennsylvania, I'm from Pennsylvania. I sort of understand the the uh, his parents and the culture, and I, I get it because that's a part of my own family in that culture. So there's just a lot that mesh that I never thought would, even though we have a generational gap. You know, he's 14 or 15 years older than me, so when we reference movies or you know cartoons we're growing up, that doesn't quite work out for us. But otherwise, uh, you know, it's a really unique relationship how much we share in common on the depths of the soul, if you will. And from there, you know. It was only a couple of months later. It's July 4th weekend. And all of a sudden we have John Taylor Gatto in studio. Mm. We're filming him. And afterwards, you know, he was running on no budget, Richard, at the time. He had nothing. They were struggling. He was a whistleblower. He had lost everything he had earned in the corporate world, everything. And um, it, it, it's really uh, shows how, you know, scrupulous he is, how moral, how ethical, how much integrity he has to be willing to sacrifice quite literally everything. And so when I saw this and I was in a position where I had some extra cash at the time, um, I was very fortunate to grow up in a big Italian family, took out a bunch of bonds when I was very young. So I was my college was paid for and I didn't have these debts and I had a decent job. So I took it upon myself to help um, sort of get into a business relationship with him where I can help build up the studio, get his message out. Because the number one thing is he wasn't getting out there. I mean, he's an incredible orator, rhetorician, and incredible knowledge. I mean, he's a he's a special intellect and very few people have that sort of uh, photographic memory, but then the ability, the wisdom to understand the interconnections of all those things. So for me, it was just making sure that his voice gets out there. And I made 
what I did was I sort of tried to help them on with backend technology. I built the computers. We went through and built studio, uh, a sort of a media studio at the time, trying to do what we're doing now, by the way, 10 years ago. And let me tell you, that was not, <laughs> yeah. it was not very conducive 10 years ago. We, we sure tried. Let me tell you some of the gory details sometime. But. Man, that's so cool. And then now you guys are just running on all cylinders, man. You know what I mean? Like, like your show, like it's so crazy. I was actually in Austin, Texas over the weekend, hanging out with a bunch of info warriors and stuff. And like, oh, that's uh, awesome. Dude, it was crazy, dude. It was so great. <laughs> I, I, I always, I feel like I would love to interact with them. I just, I love the energy they have, man. Dude, it was wild. I actually got a tour of InfoWars studio and I met Alex, dude. I met Alex in the hallway. <laughs> he was like walking down the hallway and he was like, Hell yeah. like they brought us in. They're like, don't expect to meet Alex. Like you're probably not going to meet him. He just comes in, does his own thing, takes off. And, and I was there with a couple other people and like we were just, and he just walked down the hallway. I was like, oh, there's Alex Jones. And like, he just walks up to us, shakes our hand, says, they're trying to take us down, but they're not going to win. All right, all right, Alex, cool. Good job. And he goes back to do this. Great. The whole weekend was just crazy, dude. It was insane. That's dude. that's amazing. I'm actually quite jealous in a good way. Dude, I, it, it, was, it was cool, yeah. but 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 I, I say all that, you know, because I'm still kind of like in this surreal universe. Like I'm back to work now. I was like painting painting a door. You know, I do like handyman stuff, and I was like painting a door. I'm like, how, did I just get teleported to another dimension? Like like, because <laughs> I went to this dimension. I was like on the mothership, and now here I'm just like I'm painting a door now. Wow, just back to back to reality, whatever. But. <laughs> all that to say, all that to say that like this weekend, I met so many people and like the whole event, the whole reason for going down there was centered around this event in the park. And it was an InfoWars event and there was like InfoWars flags everywhere in the middle of Austin. And it was like, you know, there was a lot of people walking by that were like, they're like, see us barbecue and they see an InfoWars flag. And it's like, they're like, holy shit. Like, like they were just like scared to death of like all of us or like, what are we going to do? But we had a lot of people coming up and talking to us. You know what I mean? I had there was these three youngsters. I remember that came up to me and they're like, what, what is, what is InfoWars? What's going on? What's all this about? And had this unique opportunity to just red pill the hell out of these people. And there's so many conversations that I had over the course of the weekend. And every single time I always pointed people towards Grand Theft World. I said, you guys check oh. this out because, you know, Info like like InfoWars Alex Jones, that's like jumping in on the deep end, you know what I mean? And really, like if you really want to have a fundamental foundational understanding of what it is and what we're dealing with in the world, you know, here's a great place to start. It'll help you understand current events from like not only a historical perspective, but then also like bring in kind of a way to analyze and interpret this information, how it's being delivered, what are the fallacies involved, and all that nonsense, man. So big props to you guys. Like you, I, I send a lot of people your way because your show is so easily digestible, entertaining. And it's uh, it's it's not like abrasive, and it's not, and that's why it's such a threat. Like you guys are getting attacked, taken down right and left, huh? Yeah, Rich uh, and by extension, GTW's Twitter account have recently been suspended. Yeah. Um, then that's is what it is. I mean, obviously, so many media producers have been dealing with that. Most, yeah. I think, most conspicuously, maybe Steven Crowder, just because of how much he yells and shouts when it happens. Good for him; he should to make yeah. everyone aware of it. But uh, that's certainly an issue. And and to your point. Uh, Nothing but absolute love and respect for Alex Jones and for Wars, especially with what they've gone through over the past 10, 15 years. The development as well. It's like we're all still learning and growing. Certainly. I mean, obviously, they have a lot of different perspectives, very broad perspectives, very sort of intense and extreme perspectives a lot of times. And everyone should allow like that's the issue of free speech. We should yeah. be allowed to entertain those perspectives. And he certainly allows that platform. But to your point, sometimes it can get you. you Alex and his crew understand sort of the historical machinations enough to just jump to the conclusions, which is fine. And that gets people sort of caught up. It, it, it aligns with the craziness of the, the news cycle 
and sort of keeps things moving. But the problem is sometimes the perspective is missed. But how did we get here? Yeah. And so what we try to do, we don't compete at all. We look at it as being complementary in yeah. regards to here's how we got here. And now, like, here's why Alex Jones and, and many other producers such as Alex Jones and Infowars, you know, are sort of on the pulse of what's going on in regards to, in regards to globalism and current events. And but here's the historical and philosophical and psychological underpinnings of why we're here and why they're so you know, sort of intense in their sort of prognostications, their conclusions, their discernments, their judgments about what's going on in the world. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Well, let's get into some of this stuff. Like, uh, so I know you talk a lot about it on the show, but like, you know, I, I picked out a few things and also I wanted to kind of just present this in a way that's maybe like a preview that will kind of leave people wanting more because I guess I'll pre preface this by saying like, so I'm a member of the Grand Theft World community. You guys can go to grandtheftworld.com, become a member. Cause literally like being a member of that community is probably the best value. I almost feel guilty. Like I'll, I'll try and throw like Rockfin donations every now and then, because it's like, I feel like the value you guys offer compared to like what a monthly membership fee is, is just insane. Like, you know, you have the biweekly um, uh, town hall things, which I'm always just so busy on Tuesday nights. That's like my one night that I'm always just so swamped and I've peeped in a couple times, but I just haven't been able to like hang out and really become a part of very much. But first of all, tell us about the town halls and then we'll get into the logic stuff. Yeah. The town hall has been an incredible uh, journey, if you will. I, it's something that was unplanned. I did not expect it to sort of become what it has become, which is sort of a self-contained podcast. Yeah, really it is. Uh, like just really for the GTW community where we go four, five, six, I think the longest we've gone is seven hours, which is like, that's, that's why I do a bi-weekly town hall, by the way, because I got to the point where it's like GTW six, seven hour podcast yeah. Sunday night to four or five in the morning. And then I'm wired, can't sleep. Monday's gone, you know, and then I have my day job and accountant during the day. Oh, <laughs> so wow. just, just trying to manage that is really intense. And then um, to, on a 48 hour turnaround, I'm doing it again where I'm all of a sudden like a oh, town hall. And it, and the reason why I'm doing it or did it and it sort of I was doing it weekly initially is because the conversations were just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Very erudite, intelligent, well-read, well-researched individuals very intense debates believe it or not there is not consensus in gtw as far as the role of governments you know um the role of, you know the issues of economics you know uh, between the, the realities of communism capitalism social all these different like we've parsed out and had oh his issues of his uh historical analysis uh ancient civilizations you know antediluvian potentiality all these like we've had every type of conversation you can possibly which i love because people bring uh very intense topics and we we debate it and, and it's not always a debate it's a, usually a conversation sometimes it leads to debate it's always respectful and it's always very interesting people come from all different um walks of life um and from different countries even and uh really provide unique perspectives on the way they see and are experiencing the tyranny sort of we've gone over the past you know two years especially with covid and so that itself has been just phenomenal uh, but i went to a bi-weekly bi schedule just to give myself a little bit of a breather because of just the intensity people sort of i think caught on to the fact that i'm have a pension for philosophy and uh that you know they love to troll me by asking me questions on philosophy at the end of the night before we end and all of a sudden three more hours goes by so. oh that's hilarious that's hilarious yeah yeah they know how to get you going for sure yeah. man so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's an awesome, like just that in and of itself is a great value, but, uh, you posted up this, um, what was it like back in March? And real quick, I just want to say it's really for the members because at the end of the, at the end of GTW, I noticed that part of the 
the ending segment we have, the ending clip um, to wrap up the show says there's a biweekly town hall. And I thought, you know, how interesting it would be, especially in a time of COVID. What are people experiencing? What are parents experiencing? What are what are you experiencing at your job? Hearing the stories, uh, hearing the perspectives, hearing the parents, the struggles the parents are having with children in regards to the schooling and trying to find homeschooling uh, solutions, hearing uh, the really tragic stories of losing friendships. I mean, friendships that lasted decades over just not getting a vaccine. And I think that was an important thing for people to remind to find the others, to find that there is a community of people that recognize that, hey, like, you know, we we we're skeptical, obviously, at the very least of, of this and the whole COVID narrative. And, you know, we're not insane. We're asking questions. We're trying to seek answers. And, you know, we're not just going to jump on the bandwagon here. And I, you know, I really appreciate um, just all the people that participate. They're the ones that make the, the town hall a success. And it's really not me. I, I feel as though I just provide a space and help facilitate what is I think people's natural ability for intelligence, for conversation, for perspective, especially when they're in the right space where they feel comfortable to express it. And that I just try to provide that space, almost like a shaman or something. So. Cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool, man. It's really good stuff. Um, and then for me, kind of what I've been going through um, is the uh, logic course. I think I'm on uh, week four and it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a lot of information to take in. You know what I mean? I, I have to pause and I look stuff up too. Um, and I feel like it's just something that, you know, it just takes practice like anything else just to understand and be able to recognize reflectively, reflexively. But, uh, but, but when it comes to this stuff, like I was saying earlier, you know, I feel like this has been removed from our education, obviously. And like, for me, I'll give you like a personal example. Like my mom was actually the career counselor at my high school. So she was like helping her job was like help kids figure out what their career path was going to be after high school and stuff like that. And I remember like as a kid, right. So then I was like, being steered and all these like going to college and you have to go to college. You're not going to be anything in the world, the sort of things like now I'm like, I wish like, like become an electrician at like age 18, dude, like, Oh my God. Like that wasn't even a, that wasn't even a possibility. And that's, that's something you can make six figures, you know? oh, have God. little money 100%. invest in how much it will cost to learn the skill yeah. and to gain the competency like that. You're right. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Just, just something like that, for example. Yeah. But then I also very remember, remember very specifically too, like my dad, my mom, like they would be like, uh, like making fun of people that went on to study philosophy. Like, well, what do you do with a philosophy degree? Like they have jokes about it. You know what I mean? And I think it's kind of like that thing where it's like, um, it's, it's, it's ridiculed or it's kind of like, it's, it's meant to be something that seems silly or absurd. Like, like, I don't know, dude, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Philosophy of anything, um, in the 20th century is nothing but a sort of cartoonish nightmarish hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's there. I'm throwing a lot of pejoratives here. But I think the point is that it sort of embraced skepticism as intensely as one as it can be embraced. And I can't I won't go into the long reason as to how we got to this historically. And if people are interested, come to the town halls and there you you can hear me wax philosophic on that. But I think the bigger issue is we sort of embraced what's called modernism and then postmodernism in philosophic discourse. And those are sort of the reigning schools in philosophy. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't like objectivists or Platonists or classicists in the university structure. There are, but they aren't the dominant voices anymore. The dominant voices are skeptics, relativists, you know, uh, people that are looking to invert sort of cultural norms and values and sort of say that they either don't exist or they're based on these, the, you know, issues of uh, power differentials between ethnic groups or between sexual orientation and all these different sort of contrived phenomena. And that's one, I think Michel Foucault, I'm not a fan of, he's the postmodernist and, but he had some interesting perspectives because when I was younger studying this stuff, he was one of the early sort of modern philosophers I sort of came into contact with in regards to his work. 
And it was interesting because I think he pointed out and said something to the effect of to be taken as a serious philosopher and sort of French philosophy at the time, like this would be the 60s or 70s, you have to basically be unintelligible. What he's basically saying, and I'm butchering the quote, is that you have to invent your own lexicon, make up a bunch of words for problems that have been perennial in the human condition and have been talked about because for all of, all of it, essentially as for as long as humans have been conscious. And that's the, sort of the problem. We all have an implicit philosophy. Like there, are, there's a justification for why we wake up every day and do what we do and go through life, whether we make it explicit or not. That's you know up to the individual and uh, as to whether they will. But there is a sort of implicit sort of reason as to why we get up and do what we do, whether we understand that reason or not. And that's so by nature of being, we're all sort of philosophers. And philosophers, uh, philosophy etymologically is uh, sort of the Greek words philo and sophia. So philo meaning uh, love or love of, and then Sophia meaning wisdom. So it's sort of the love of wisdom. So it's just the love of knowledge, the love of wisdom, the love of truth that uh, I think in many respects for those who are honest with themselves, we're all seeking. So in a way, I kind of see us all as philosophers. It's just a matter of understanding the tool that's used to analyze philosophy, that'd be logic, and uh, then the ways to communicate it. And that would be sort of a rhetorical analysis, classical rhetoric, you know, what Rich teaches often in, his, in the autonomy uh, class, as well as what Benny Willis teaches in his Parkesia mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's great, man. And so I kind of want to give the people uh, maybe a, a taste of, of what you have to offer, just kind of like pick your brain a little bit um, and hopefully maybe steer them then towards uh, the full logic course and then, and then the trivium. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about that too. But, uh, but uh, so Man, so I guess maybe the first place we could start. So I heard you just kind of describe the components of logic in like a anthropomorphized way where it's like you have like the definitions or the heart sort of thing. Uh, you talk about induction, deduction being the brain. Can you give us that model to kind of help us feel out where we're at with this whole idea here? Sure. Um, so why don't I back it up before I give you the I analogy I used? I'm just going to say there's a confusion also on what logic is, unfortunately. Okay. And this comes from uh, really the modern perspective. This comes really uh, Bertrand Russell and Albert North Whitehead wrote in Principia Mathematica. We've obviously quoted uh, Bertrand Russell a number of times on the show because of his reliance on sort of a scientism perspective on a scientifically perfected utopic society and um, the impact of science on society's publication, I think, I believe in 1954. But the reason why I bring this up is there is a sort of there are two logics, if you will. Uh, one is called symbolic logic, and that's a mathematical invention that has nothing to do with reality. Uh, the logic that I teach and the logic that had been part of human discourse and understanding as a scientific discipline, in other words, a systematic conceptual understanding as a, as a subject unto itself, is comes from Aristotle. And this was the tool that was used to analyze all philosophy and to analyze the process by which we understand our perceptions and conceptions and, and how we communicate that to other people. So it's a tool for understanding the mind, how we learned and how we communicate, how we use language. And that sort of came under attack in the really the 18th, 19th century and culminated in the total destruction really in the 20th century and the sort of reformulation of what logic is and sort of a mathematically derived closed system deterministic fashion. Um, and that's that's for its own conversation, but I just wanted to qualify that a little bit. So it's Aristotelian logic, which is sometimes called formal logic, which has mm -hmm. four subjects. And the four subjects are uh, the informal fallacies, the uh, deduction, induction, and definition. Those are the four general subjects that make up the discipline of Aristotelian or formal logic. The reason why it's called formal has to do with the form 
of the syllogism, which is the uh, uh, is part of deduction, a part of logic, understanding how we come to a valid conclusion based on premises. So you come to understand how you can arrive at a sen understanding of truth and not have it be in contradiction. Um, so what I did was, as part of the course, I tried to bring a, uh, utilize an analogy I thought that would help people um, sort of instantiate what I was trying to ex express in regards to analogizing the aspects of the body. So the brain would be equivalent to induction or deduction. That would be the process by which we arrive at truth. Uh, definition would be the heart at logic. That's defining the essential characteristic of what something is fundamentally, as opposed to all other things we experience. Uh, the informal fallacies are essentially, that's really the, if you will, the, um, I don't know, the wax on, wax off if you will, in regards to understand the basic uh, maneuvers and techniques you need to utilize in your daily life in order to deflect the incoming assault of lies and propaganda and misinformation and disinformation that's being foisted on us at all times, every seeming second of the day that we're experiencing information. And then uh, see, last but not least, what I got deduction, induction, definition, form. Yeah, so I got I got all those. I think I related the informal fallacies to uh, to uh, this, the uh, immune system in the skin, because the skin yeah. is by extension an organ, and it's to protect your your obviously your uh, internal organs, your internal musculoskeletal structure, so forth and so on. So it's the informal fallacies are analogize or analog. You can sort of analogize them to the skin and mm -hmm. the immune system, where definition is the heart that gives us the essence of something. And then deduction induction is related to the brain, which would be sort of how we process and arrive at truth. And that's that's the analogy I use to describe the four components that make up um, the study of formal logic, because in a way they really relate to how the body operates as a system, because that's what it is. Formal logic is a system that if we utilize it uh, consistently should should um, be able to arrive at consistency in regards to your expectations of how you experience life and understand the things you experience in life. Okay, cool. And so then just on the topic of de definitions, like we seem to be living in this uh, world where definitions seem to be fluid and they're not really uh, <laughs> rooted in anything. Like they, if, the, if their argument doesn't uh, withstand scrutiny, they'll just go in and change the definition to kind of, you know, adapt it to fit what it is they're trying to push forward. Like how infuriating is this overall agenda of just, just changing definitions just to suit whatever the whims of the day are? So I cut out a little bit, but I think you asked the question about definition, how infuriating it is in order to put up with other, oh, you're back. Okay, well, yeah. well what, so, what, what it was is basically, um, talking about how today in this day and age, like, like mm -hmm. definitions are just fluid, right? Like they're just changing definitions yeah. all the time. Like, like how infuriating is, is that, that they just, if they can't win an argument, they just change, go back and change the definition to fit whatever it is they're trying to instantiate. There you go. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it from the concept to the actual. Use, Hell yeah. I always get to. I always get excited when I get to use the word instant. <laughs> I think it's not. It's like the perfect word. Take great it from word. The concept to the yep. the actual. It's infuriating. It's beyond infuriating because people already don't understand how definition is arrived at to begin with. We sort of have an implicit understanding of the essential nature of something. Like we sort of understand what a dog is in contrast to a cat, in contrast to a human, but we haven't made explicit. What is truly the thing that makes it a dog in contrast to all other animals or truly a human in contrast to all other humans? They haven't thought about that systematically. It's actually sort of a little, it's kind of like a formula behind it, if you will. But it also gets to the heart of one of the biggest problems in philosophy in history called the problem of the universals, which I can't get into here. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, 
it relates back to some of the biggest and most important questions that the perennial questions that have, have been, will uh, continue to be, and will continue to be asked throughout human history, assume, assuming that there isn't some fundamental change to the nature of human consciousness. So this is just, um, it's, it's frustrating because I remember when we interviewed John Taylor Gatto and he, he acknowledged this. He's like, uh, they change definitions. Everyone becomes confused. And it's like, that's the point. And he was talking about them changing definitions going back to the time of uh, Beatrice Webb and the Fabian Socialists and how they keep, like, they change the definition of liberal. They change the definition of socialism in some instance. They change the definition of capital. They change over. And this is, you know, we're talking about 100 years ago. They're doing this just in publications. You can only imagine now with the onslaught of mass media and information technology that we, the milieu of information technology we exist in, how, how much more pernicious this is. Um, in regards to people have less critical thinking than they had back then in reading comprehension. And yet the definitional changes that are taking place are happening so quickly that they can't get an understanding of what was the actual thing in discussion to begin with. And that's sort of, that's part of the point that helps to gaslight individuals, helps to create cognitive dissonance and confusion. And that breaks the will, the will of the individual, which is the ultimate goal in any war is the, I think it comes from Sun Tzu. It ultimately has to do with breaking the, your will, the, your opponent's will to fight. And so it is a psychological issue here. And I, I think that's really a part of what's going on is if they're trying to make it so we either seem insane by changing the definition so we, that we feel like we're not, well, I thought it was this the other day. Oh, the herd, herd immunity is not what it was. And vaccines, not what it was. And, you know, what, what is this? And so we kind of get confused. Then we're not sure to have the confidence and the, the, the ability to communicate that, I think they changed the definition and here's how they changed the definition. And this is why it, it doesn't relate to what they're changing it to. We're sort of just caught in this nebulous space where it's like, how do I take action on this? And based on that, you're sort of, you're sort of, uh, your hands are sort of metaphorically tied behind your back. And that's the point. They sort of want to take your knees out from behind and put your hands behind your back and sort of, you know, put us in the fetal position or the or prone position. Um, and that's part of breaking the individual's will, in my opinion. The reason why you lie this conspicuously is to break the individual's will so people don't question and people don't take action uh, on the reality that they're experiencing uh, or even know how to. Yeah. You know, that's that's another issue. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. And it's and I should state when you change the definition, part of Aristotelian logic and the part of the trivium is really about giving you the tools to understand how we learn anything at all. So it's giving you sort of the understanding of how the mind works in a systematic sort of scientific understanding, meaning sort of a systematic conceptual understanding. That's what I mean by scientific. And um, there's, uh, you know, when we look at it from, uh, shoot, I had some, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. All but um, yeah, I'll come back. To all you. good. It's all good. Well, so so on that, like, you know, I feel like we this is a deliberate informational psychological attack oh i remember let me yeah yeah no sorry i'll cut in the lack so the uh when you control the definition when you control language this is why free speech is so important mm -hmm. the, the crux of the freedom of the, the human soul the human individual if you control language you control the mind that's mind control when you control what can and can't be said when you control the the way people perceive the reality is is a man a man is a woman a woman is this a he she it thing you know what i'm saying all of a sudden the categories of how we experience life and what we what we consider to be the boundaries or parameters of life, like, you know, things that seem to be inexorable, such as biological sex, 
and uh, uh, language as part of a human condition and these sorts of things become nebulous and become part of sort of a spectrum. And once it becomes spectrum, everything's sort of relative to anyone else's perspective. And in insert in that vacuum, in that void, you can insert a tyrant's own lexicon and a tyrant's lexicon is going to be what they want it to be, which what has been the push over the past couple of years. It's the control of language, the disinformation board, which obviously got shut down, uh, you know, this this Twitter, uh, Google, YouTube, this whole situation when it comes to free speech, but private platforms and how we deal with this. That, see, that's the, to me what people aren't seeing is sort of the underlying issue is that there's a deeper problem here. People sometimes think mind control is putting on some sort of helmet with a bunch of electrodes and like, you know, no, no, no. All they have to do is control your language and repeat the same thing over and over again. And you'll start, people will start regurgitating what's being repeated and start acting that way without critically analyzing or thinking it, thinking about it for themselves. And so the control of language is the control of the mind quite literally. So I think that's why the control of definitions, the changing definitions, or even a lot uh, foregoing our ability to even talk about certain or utilize certain words and discourses, even though it may be reprehensible, but to not allow for that to be challenged by use of free speech and people challenging that through argumentation is extremely troubling um, because in that vacuum, you get into the absolutist rhetoric of religious organizations or or governmental rec organizations. The same sort of top down tyrannies we've experienced in the past are manifesting just in a different sort of cultural clothing, if you will. And yeah. that's why I'm very I really you're yes, uh, I'm not just infuriated by it, but I see a larger pattern here that really disturbs me. Yeah. And, and so I feel like so much of this, they're you, they're executing a playbook, you know, whether it's uh, other operations they've ran in the past or just simple, like, you know, you just look back at like 1984, for example, they talk about this exact breakdown of reality. Like reality is what we tell you it is like four plus yes, four. Yes. You know? So it's a deliberate strategy. So based on that and, and, you know, seeing how they kind of run the same playbook over and over, whether it's like false flags or just, you just, you're just capitalizing off of horribly tragic events. Um, do you think that they're, uh, do you think that they're just, and to me, it doesn't seem like it's enough coincidences to make, to make me think that they're deliberately doing this. Like they deliberately understand the fallacies that they're utilizing against us and they're doing it intentionally to break us, to, to, to psychologically just rupture us to a point where then we, they can, uh, you know, insert whatever they want. Right. So I guess the question is, is, do you feel like they're just but it comes across as them just being buffoonishly stupid a lot of times. Like, do you feel like they're buffoonishly stupid or that if they are literally engaging in, in this like high level psychological warfare because they know what they're doing? Like, what, what are your thoughts or a combination of the two? Maybe combination of the two I actually probably give more weight to human incompetence. Yeah. Unfortunately, just because of the absurdity that's taken place and seeing like Rich and I just did a, and everyone's been doing a critique of Sam Harris, for example, sure. right? and his unbelievable comments. Yeah. Um, and Rich and I went into a little bit more depth because Rich wasn't aware of his very extreme positions on determinism. So we went into a larger discourse. I'm like, this is how, you know, intense and his perspective is and untenable his perspective is. But, um, you know, when it comes to people like Harris, I think that, that I look at that and say that's probably the majority of individuals and intellectuals in the world where they're just they have a decontextualized understanding of history, meaning it's uh, it's written by the victors. It's written by the propagandists that want to, uh, you know, promote a certain narrative of uh, of manifest destiny of the Anglo-American Ang or Anglo, yeah, Anglo-American establishment, the Anglo-Saxon race, the white Europeans, which, you know, all these, whatever one wants to dictate it as a, a continuation of the Fabian strategy of eugenics, of racism, 
and of, uh, of uh, slavery and uh, a sort of caste system, the control of society in a top-down hierarchical fashion where, of course, they're the, the most benevolent overlords. Unfortunately, I'm very terrified that the road paid to hell is with good intentions, I think, as yeah. the old cliche goes. Yep. And I think a lot of these people are true believers in the sense that they really believe, like people on the Council on Foreign Relations or people at the UN, um, obviously in the World Economic Forum, that the that the global warming is an actual reality or that, you, you know, that... Um, uh, they need to have stakeholder capitalism because of the issue of uh, national uh, national sovereignty and identity politics and these sorts of issues and a whole host of other contrived problems. That doesn't to say that there aren't people that are aware. That's mm -hmm. that's the issue is that there are. It's just trying to parse out. And I think we try to do it on the show as best we can. Who who's sort of part of the inner coterie, if you will, that make up this quorum of individuals that get maybe get together and are more aware of what the true intentions are in regards to a because we show on the show, there's a continual line a philosophic line of thought in regards to a sort of progress of the favored races, which is the subtitle to Darwin's um, on the origin of species and an original essay and publication. And this idea of eugenics, like there's a philosophy of eugenics and that's sort of being reimagined sort mm -hmm. of um, in what's the word I'm looking for. It's, it's transforming itself into this new sort of admixture sort of chimeric chaotic hybrid of um, transhumanism and eugenics where the end goal of essentially the eugenic process of genetic genetically perfecting the human species i guess is in a way getting rid of genetics and transforming to to machine itself it's weird as you but you can see a philosophy of individuals that seem to be very misanthropic in positions of intense power uh, seemingly hate themselves, hate the human race, nihilistic, and want to see find a way to transcend the suffering they experience and seem to be projecting onto a whole bunch of other people in regards to us. And in, in that regard, you know, one can't deny that uh, there is a there there's an interplay between both. It's not an either or, it's an also and. Most of the individual, I think, are unfortunately true believers, which is devastating because trying to break someone from an ideological perspective is trying to break someone that's really in an intense sort of cultish or religious perspective. I'm not denouncing religion. There's a value to religion, but you know, people that have maybe go a little bit, the true believer types, the wide-eyed, a little bit too intense. Um, sure. You know, then that's that's the thing I, I sort of see that's it's it's problematic because they're the ones that will sacrifice themselves for the ideology they'll do everything to lift up the climate science or the COVID science or the vaccine science whatever science they want to and sacrifice themselves to the the, the altar of scientism and of course uh so the the priest uh the ultimate priest being dr fauci can uh mm -hmm. you know yeah totally in some capacity their sacrifice totally. <laughs> and, and just to that point like i like i heard uh, james corbett put it so well on one of his videos a while back he talked about how like the whole eugenics movement pretty much faked its own death right and just kind of rebranded itself as that is brilliant and it's kind of evolved into what we're seeing now but on a much more like uh culturally marxist sort of like hey you're not cool you're not a good person unless you go along with this eugenics movement right <laughs> that's so well said that's exactly what it is they rebranded themselves and, and they much like what's been going on in politics with postmodernism, sort of you know the the tyranny of the right very conspicuous in regards to things like nazism and uh stalinist russia and communism ussr but not so 
obvious. It's much more inconspicuous from the left because the left isn't like marching in lockstep and uniform, you know, down parading themselves with their weapons down the street. They're trying to control language, they're virtue signaling, they're acting as though they have the moral high grounds. You know, this goes more along the lines of what Yuri Bezmenov said in his understanding of ideological subversion, which is very pernicious because it's a multi-generational technique, meaning they've been utilizing this over the course of many generations, getting to the children specifically, which is really why when we we tragedy and hope initially and we continue to focus on education because it's really about they're getting to the children. Parents are becoming aware of this, but they don't realize the entire outcome-based education system was set up to break the will of your child. That's ultimately, we're talking about breaking the mm. will, um, confusing, saltifying, a propiedutic function, Alexander Inglis. So this is this idea that we're going to keep we're going to get people and keep them in their caste. If you're a lower caste, we're going to get you there and you're going to stay there. And we're going to sort of reinforce that through the educational system because we're going to put you with the same people in the same environment with the same problems. And then you're going to be pumped out into the same socioeconomic situation and that'll keep us in positions of power. And that's why Rich focuses on, especially with the autonomy course, deprogramming people from the programming of uh, uh, outcome-based education and progressive education. And that's so we see education as being the most important aspect of what's going on in regards to trying to nip this in the bud in regards to stop the, the, uh, the, the movement towards tyranny, the mass formation that is currently mm -hmm. going on in society. Obviously, Mat Matthias Desmond, as mentioned, as well as Mark, uh, Mark McDonald. So um, that's, you know, that's sort of our our focus because at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, we have to realize that we're all victims of those institutions and we have to find a way to sort of understand and break free. Many do, many do, many uh, engage their own logical processes without the need to necessarily make it explicit, but many don't, and many don't have those tools and they don't know how to get started. So Rich tries to give them back a sense of their own confidence. He teaches them sales techniques. He teaches them uh, time management skills. He teaches them uh, digital marketing skills to leverage their unique talents and techniques. And so it's just, it's chock full of so many actual tangible skills as well as intangible goods in regards to a community of very, of, of dynamic individuals that have, that share skills and programming and outdoor skills and permaculture. I mean, so many and, and building and infrastructure, like there's so many different skill sharing that's going on in his community, as well as just the fact that there's an interaction of like-minded individuals that um, is for a lot of people feel isolated, especially over the past two years and not being able to um, participate um, with the lockdowns. But I also must mention as well, going back to education, I think parents are also aware of what's going on in the schools and how conspicuous this has become in regards to uh, the the attack on the child in, in the sense of uh, sexuality and the pornography and the complete, um, the pedophilia, just what are straight, obvious human evils. These are as, as conspicuous, as obvious. Very few people would try to argue differently. These are just straight, horrible the worst, in my opinion, of human evils are sort of being uh, upheld as moral virtues to six-year-olds yeah. in these schools. This is unconscionable. It's uncon And then parents just automatically know this, but they don't get that it's more than this. Long before they are teaching your child about sex ed and gender transition, all this absolute inane and absurd bullshit, they were already breaking the will of your child. They already broke in some capacity the will of you, possibly. Some people yeah. work out of that again, and that's just up to life experiences. They can't get to everyone. But it, it, the idea is, unfortunately, is that they're they're already working on getting used to, used to a sense of bells and whistles, author, uh, capitulating to authority, 
you know, getting you used to the work environment, you know, your nine to five, listen to the boss. And that's, there's a utility there. I'm not denying that, but there it's based on that old factory model of outcome-based education where they sort of break up the individual's mind, don't allow you to connect subjects together. How does math relate to geometry, relate to art, relate to science, you know, and you're sort of in this sort of cognitive dissonance constantly because you're, the mind is being so constantly shuffled from one subject to another while at the same time you have to deal them with the social environment of school which is bad enough to begin with for most individuals so it's just fifteen thousand hours of state-sponsored education the only what did rich say the only difference between the mafia and the government is is that the fifteen thousand hours of indoctrination yeah so, so brutal man it's so brutal and then like man yeah just um yeah it's just it's relentless man and so you know it's interesting like with this show you know, I started off, you know, wanted to talk about like just like highlighting all the news that used to be, you know, rebunked or used to be debunked that is now, you know, coming true. So blah, 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 rebunked. And I realized very quickly, you know, as this continued to escalate, particularly the last like, you know, year or so, I'm like, man, we like, okay, so what's the solution, right? What's the solution? And so we've been talking a lot about solutions on the show. And uh, the biggest thing that I've been focusing on that I've been personally involved with doing ever since i've been in oregon like this is the only thing that allowed me to keep my sanity out in oregon was community building building community bringing people together like-minded people um and just trying to uh share we were doing like skill sharing we put on like a festival last year which by the way i want to talk to you guys about that too because we're putting on the second annual festival in mid-september we're doing like a big panel discussion we're inviting a bunch of people i talked to stephanie about it but anyway all that to say like you know community building like that's what it's all about right now we have to be building community and, and like you talk about the the uh, autonomy community being such a you know i hear rich say like a culture of excellence right and, and i feel that trickles down to the grand theft world community it's just such a cool um just high level just a bunch of crushers they're just doing big things and you know just uh you know that's our community right there you know when shit hits the fan that's going to be our community you know and, and i've been focusing a lot on like in-person meetups uh, i've done a couple of those since i've been out in tennessee uh, we were doing them constantly out in Oregon. Um, but I feel like, uh, that's the key. That's the key. You know what I mean? It's like in-person meetups, but anyway, anyway, I totally agree. I think it's, uh, it can't be, uh, understated the importance of building community. I think a lot of times we get caught into the tragedy of yeah. what we're experiencing and we forget about the hope, which is Rich's sort of, uh, he envisioned it in sort of a mystery school perspective, a coincidence of opposites, coincidentia positorum of the alchemist, where it's just like on one side, you have a tragedy, which is, <laughs> history was well, Stephen Daedalus and Ulysses, James Joyce's famous novel, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. So there's that aspect, right, of this, the understanding of history being essentially, unfortunately, slavery, tyranny, war, famine, yeah. genocide, not there's a beauty, there's art, there's, 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 uh, there's poetry, um, there's invention, there's discovery. So it's not like all of history, obviously, is marred by that. But one can't, unfortunately, uh, unwind and separate out the, the 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 issues of power, tyranny, and war as a function of history. But then on the other side, there's the hope. I know we've been accused mm -hmm. of in the past, sometimes focusing a little bit too much on the negative aspect of it. Of course, the show itself, it's a it's a history show. Yeah. Um, the comedy show. Come on now. Yeah, it's a comedy show. It's a comedy <laughs> show that like does some fun little history yeah. stuff. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> but it's only a comedy show. Yeah, that's exactly. correct. <laughs> wink wink. Um and, you know, we tried this before. Rich uh, did a show called History So It Doesn't Repeat with the old studio that I helped them build many years ago. And that was, it wasn't, it was a success, a success and wasn't a success in regards to, I think we tried to start with these really nebulous and ill-defined historical perspectives that's hard for people to wrap their brains around because there's so 
much has been occulted from our education and then work our way up to current events where I think this has been more successful where we start with the current events and then work backwards because people can immediately grab onto the current event. It's like, well, how do we get here? It's like, well, did you hear about this guy? Hear about their philosophy? Oh, did you know they're connected with this group and they're financed yeah. by this these individuals? It's like, oh, now I can see. So it's been really a uh, an interesting journey seeing sort of because we tried it the other way, but seeing how successful working with the especially with how conspicuous it is, the the, the globalists, the agenda 21, agenda 2030, the World Economic Forum, um, World Health Organization, um, you know, all the UN, CFR, they're all in. This yeah. is the poker. They went all in. And at this point, like this is no more 10 years ago where it actually was somewhat hard to sell to your average normie because it just they're living their life. It's not that obvious to if someone's not really embedded in it or has experienced uh, what Richard, you know, his wife had experienced in regards to whistleblowing and, you know, what's in the media. But now you hear this. You know, Christy Lee is part of Banvod video yeah. and many others come. It's like, you know, they were part of the establishment. All of a sudden they saw just with the COVID narrative, how ridiculous totally. this is. It's like, totally. I got to meet her this weekend, too. I had to meet no. her. Cool. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> the whole info is crew down there. Yeah, dude, it was pretty cool. I got to meet Alex Stein, dude. I went. We were, I was out at the club with Primetime 99, Alex Stein, <laughs> Owen Schroyer, Matt Baker from San Diego, dude. Like, we were just tearing Oh, down. man, that's... I bet that was a... I'd love to hear some cool, of those though. stories. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty mellow. We were just chilling, you know what I mean? Just nice. like, whatever, smoking cigars, hanging out. But it was like, dude, just that's insane, so insane weekend. Yeah, dude. Well, I'm hoping to, like, allow the listeners, the viewers, to walk away with something in their toolkit tonight. You know what I mean? Now, but, what, but going through the logic course, like, I understand... There's so much foundational work that needs to go in before you can even jump into like the logical fallacies. It just to be fair, you know, because yeah, we could just throw all these logical fallacies at these folks, but like without having like the context or the foundation to understand a lot of these things, it's difficult, you know. So I was kind of thinking about that going into this. So I think like a couple things that I would I would like to maybe just set the stage or or clear up. Like one of the things for me that was really interesting is the idea of metaphysics. Now I didn't have any understanding of this. Like I thought metaphysics is like going into a barnes and noble and it's the book section about like crystals and uh like uh like uh what is it like uh telekinesis <laughs> sure, or, like, yeah. projection like i thought that's what metaphysics yeah. was but in the context of philosophy can you can i explain what metaphysics like actually is i guess <laughs> <laughs> i'm so glad you, you brought this up because it is a major issue this, unfortunately this, again this is this is like a foundational thing like the, this is something that we need to understand before we can even venture down the road of like understanding logical fallacies is that right that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And then in my course, what I do is, and I should have split, if I do another uh, sort of, um, if I run the course one more time, I would split up the first lecture into two because it is very heavy, very meaty. And um, I didn't I realize. My favorite one. That was my favorite one. Like there's so much good, good gravy and good information in there. It's like, okay. Yeah. And that's, I'm glad you said, I really appreciate it because I, it has to be presented. You have to be yeah. presented with the foundation of the, the assumptions upon which philosophy is built before you can even get to why logic is a thing, why you should use it, why it's a function of our natural aspect of being human and the capacity for language. And so the, we have to, I had to sort of present the axiomatic, the, the, the basic assumptions behind philosophy, behind cognition and behind consciousness before I can even get into the subjects that make up the discussion on formal logic or Aristotelian logic. And for that reason, I, you know, the course one, it was an incredible success. The individuals that participated asked some of the best questions. They were essentially the best, uh, the class I could have ever asked for. They asked the best question. I've, I've, I've taught the trivium a number of times and had wonderful classes, but these individuals really came prepared. <laughs> they were serious. Um, and I really appreciate that. And that 
meant the world because it, it really um, brought the course up to a whole different level, especially when I got outside. And if you're on week four, I don't know if you've gotten to the where we try to practice the fallacies and we I, we, I think I'm just getting to that part where yeah, right you'll now. enjoy that because you'll yeah. see now everyone. It's not me lecturing anymore. It's everyone jumping in and trying to identify when someone's lying to them. When is this a news anchor? Like people just intuitively sort of know people are lying to them, but they can't make conspicuous what that is. And so they let, leave it sort of as this nebulous intuition. But you, you have so much more confidence once you once you name something, once you make it explicit, you can take action on it. You can there's some sort of definition and understanding and qualities associated with it. I think that's so important is like and, and obviously psychologists and in Rich's course, autonomy, he'll teach uh, uh, time management. This is a major issue in time management, labeling things, making things, naming them, giving them a sort of identity really helps the mind think systematically. So I think that's one of the, the things is we first have to provide the foundations for then how, to, how do we name these phenomena of how we understand concepts and language and how these things are utilized for or against us. And uh, before I can then jump into the, the sort of meat and potatoes of what logic is. So that is if you can get over that hurdle for those that can get over that hurdle then you can jump because you can jump right into then how why the fallacies exist how they relate to the law of identity and existence and how you then can communicate them and defend the use of uh calling out the fallacies defend the understanding of the informal fallacies instead of just getting caught in this sort of relativistic trap be like yeah you're you're utilizing a fallacy but that's just a language game which mm -hmm. is what modern uh, symbolic logicians and modern post, you know, postmodernists and modernists love to play when sort of the relativists, the, the sort of, uh, the people that, uh, are against any sort of essential understanding of, of human consciousness or, or language and stuff like that. So I think that's, if you can get over that foundation, um, it will provide a very rich understanding of how all these subjects interrelate. Now on the topic of metaphysics, the term itself has become hijacked by new age spirituality. Totally. It's a tragedy. Um, I got caught up in that and my, cause I talked about my psychedelic forays many are right. at the beginning of the conversation, but I know what that's like. Um, I know how much misunderstanding, especially taking from the perennial tradition philosophy, which is a philosophy that spans many different traditions and many different cultures that sort of recognize the same sort of fundamental truths about transcendence, consciousness, the nature of being uh, unity, these sorts of like very beautiful, very transcendent, very lofty concepts. Mm -hmm. And they sort of abuse them and uh, reify them, sort of turn them into like a, almost a, a good that can be like passed on like something that's tangible and they really decontextualize it from the more nuanced understanding of how these philosophers came up with these concepts and the importance of such so the term metaphysics is the very first subject and the subjects in philosophy exist in a hierarchy you can't have metaphysics without uh you can't have aesthetics or ethics without a metaphysics so metaphysics is essentially asking the question what exists it is a uh, has to do with two constitu two constituents that has to do with uh, in traditional academia, which would be ontology, the nature of being, and then cosmology, the generation of a universe. So this is basically just asking the question: What exists? What is the nature of being in the universe, and how it came to be? Um, the next question after that. So it was real quick for context. Yeah. The term itself is absurd. Meta is a prefix in Latin either Greek or Latin, excuse me there, which just means after. So I think it was Andronicus. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah, so Andronicus of Rhodes, when he was compiling uh, the Organon, which is the six books that uh, make up uh, the study of logic and Aristotelian logic, he uh, this would have been like second century AD, I want to say third century AD. 
So many hundreds of years after the time of Aristotle, he was compiling the works that were still extant at that time. And he had just finished, uh, I guess, translating or compiling the, the physics, his work on physics. And so he came up with this other work that he's like, well, this is the book that came after physics. And that's why it's called mm. metaphysics. Okay. And it just so happened to be adopted then as a part of philosophic terminology from that point forward, as far as uh, asking essentially the biggest and most the broadest questions in regards to to philosophy. And then after that, I'll just very quickly ring, ring them off. It's uh, epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, it's essentially asking the question, how do we know what exists? Mm. Then it's uh, ethics, um, which is essentially about human behavior. Um, politics, that's essentially human behavior applied to a larger social organization. And then aesthetics has to do with art and aesthetic canons in the society. So that's, and that's sort of they all interrelate and they all relate back to uh, one's metaphysics or should at least if they're if one's consistent. Okay. And then, um, and then the other thing, the other co foundational component would be axioms, right? Or maybe not the other, but eight, another can you, can, uh, the, the, the two that I really, and maybe there's more, I don't know, but the primacy of existence and the primacy of consciousness. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit about, just a little bit about those? If, if you sure, can. Yeah. So axioms are fundamental assumptions that we, have to utilize in order to have a sort of understanding or systematic chain of understanding what we call deductions for how we describe the world around us we have to have in other words an underlying assumption or premise for which to organize the rest of our premises arguments and then conclusions and i think well premises that build arguments that lead to conclusions so there are fundamental assumptions you can think of axioms as fundamental assumptions that we we can't get beneath an axiom for example you can't get beneath existence every time you do you get into circular logic you get into infinite regresses you get in other words these paradoxes and contradictions that can't be resolved you have to we just start as a function of existing in a world experiencing existing and having the ability to compare and contrast what we experience in a world. That's essentially the fundamental assumption of Aristotelian logic that we have our five senses and perception. We form concepts of out of those experiences. And that's a function of, of, of what, what we can start with as a basis of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so in, in philosophy, while there's a lot of different theories, but two very general axiomatic assumptions comes from from two different realms, if you will. One is the empiricist side, which starts with knowledge beginning in the senses first, experiencing the world. Um, that's an epistemological precept, but it leads to a metaphysical understanding of primacy of existence, meaning whether I'm conscious or not, reality continues to exist. Um, whether I die or not, my family will move on, my family will continue to exist, people will continue to exist, the earth will continue to exist. And my consciousness is a just the awareness of that which exists. And then the, our use of reason and logic is trying to understand the nature of the things that exist, both ourselves, the nature of what it means to be human, and then the nature of things, the, what we call concretes or existence in reality, what makes them up, what are their properties, what makes them similar or unique compared to other things, that, that, those sorts of inquiries. And so that's one uh, axiomatic perspective. The other is called primacy of consciousness, which assumes that, and that's a rationalist perspective. Again, this is an epistemological precept, but uh, it starts with the idea that we can know reality without experience, that we can understand it purely a priori prior to any experience of anything. We can have a pure deduction about how the universe should exist and pure sort of rational understanding based on 
purely abstract concepts. And so they start with this idea that consciousness has to be first, and then we get to get to existence. Now, both are interdependent. It's sort of a little bit of a false dichotomy to assume one or the other. And but it's it's also messy. That's well, how do I explain this? There's a there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of issues with definitions mm -hmm. um, in regards to the lack of nuanced understanding and those two sort of axiomatic positions. And by the way, they're not the only one. There's sort of a there's also an indeterminate position where people that essentially have there have been philosophers that have concluded that knowledge is not knowable. So to assume there's a consciousness or an existence is absurd. And that's sort of their their nihilist <laughs> solipsistic, which is an epistemological another epistemological precept leading to a sort of nihilistic world, which is very tragic. That leads to the justification for arguably anything good or bad. That's awesome, man. Well, well, thank you for, for that explanation. Like, and then folks will like, just understand, like, these are just foundational. This is the foundation that we build up from there. And like, I, man, I just tell you, I've learned so much. Yeah. And oh. like real quick, I'll just say like, I'm saying a lot of big words and I'm saying a lot of, um, I don't want people to be taken aback by this because metaphysics, <laughs> I laugh because metaphysics, epistemology, um, uh, ethics, politics, and aesthetics, yeah, these are kind of big words, but they mean very, they have very simple definitions. Totally. totally. Which is hilarious. It, it's, it's classic in uh, philosophy to make things way more complex than they need to be. That's sort of a hallmark of philosophy, especially sure. since German idealism in the 18th century onwards. It's been just a nightmare of confusion in regards to it, philosophers inventing their own lexicons and reappropriating sure. words that are used in different contexts or used in different understandings in the, 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 sort of colloquial use of the of the people at the time and all that good stuff so the, the meat is if you can get through the foundational understanding there's an actual utility and yeah. what i did with my logic course is really try to focus on the utility it's something i really had to struggle with myself because sure. people don't have the time to sit down and spend i mean i had a lot sacrifice a lot in my life and it's out of a personal interest and love for the subject and my weird psychedelic forays but they don't have the time to necessarily go into all of this. this is a very abstract territory it takes a lot of time to sort of instantiate to make useful i remember mm -hmm. my mentor mentioned that it's not you know it takes a couple of years and i'm trying to speed that process up what i'm trying to say is okay we're all busy we're all you know we're in a situation where we're struggling with our you know government and mandates we're struggling with our jobs we're struggling with cash and inflation there's so much going on and then there's globalism there's the ukraine war there's Af it's been non-stop yeah. it's just been absolutely non-stop so i'm trying to Finally, I capitulated to a suggestion Rich made to me and said, take the elements of formal logic that are most actionable, that people can take immediate action on and find useful in their day-to-day -day life and run a course based on that. I rebelled against that for years because I just thought it would it would remove too much context. I'd be betraying a sense of my own love and appreciation for the subject. But I'm actually really appreciative I did it because it ended up, I think, one, made people interested in those deeper and more abstract aspects while at the same time giving people the actual uh sort of the the sort of what's the actual tools that they can use immediately in their day-to-day -day life to be able to analyze understand the fallacies the way people are lying to them and also we went over techniques about how to engage with people when you're being lied to in that regards or how to how to engage and how to you know and that sort of bridges in the rhetoric which may be a course that run at some point at some point classical rhetoric um, as well as something we talked about, but I, w I really want to stress that yes, there's the two lectures or it's one long lecture. It's about five hours. It's the first lecture. 
is very heavy on theory. It's very heavy on abstraction. You get by that, it's all utility afterwards. You're getting into the fallacies, many of them. And I, what I really tried to do, and I thought was a lot of fun, is take clips we took from the show. I was just gonna say that's the best. Is you actually throw in like these these like the White House press secretary or like 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 actually like uh, some of these like propaganda pieces. Like uh the, oh my god, like the Johns the one I was listening to earlier. I was like listening to your listen all day at work today, and like the one where. Uh, Johns Hopkins University one where the guy's like, oh, yeah. so, so uh, when do you think you're going to get your kid the shot? Like, just like, just like, oh, my Complex God, I was, question. Like, I was dying. I was just like, oh, my God. And but then but then applying the fallacies and just like the, the breakdowns to these actual real world scenarios is so cool, man. I, I just uh, it's so useful, so helpful. That's the key, because uh, Aristotelian logic, it's not this is not so much philosophy gets lost in pure abstraction. I think that's why people just how does this have anything relationship to reality? It's so lofty and it's. It's theories and concepts, you know, early philosophy was inseparable from the mystical experience, which I find very interesting, but it's very nuanced before we got into more secular sort of understanding. So it's, I, I just, I thought important and I, I take this lesson from my mentor, Gino Denning, which had just, uh, I could not express how much he has meant to me in my own development as an individual, uh, especially because he's the one that gave us the trivium and tra through tragedy and hope. And he really really honed into me the importance of relating it to reality. Mm -hmm. If I can't relate this to reality, how can I take have action utility agency over this? How can I do anything with this? And so that's the important. I really wanted to relate like these are people that are going on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever, and spouting out this absolute and in inane imperial bullshit quite frankly. And like, I want people to be aware that like you can make explicit and call out where they are lying and yeah. where that will help you analyze. First, it'll not only help you to understand that you're being lied to, but then you can also now ask the question, is this intentional? Mm -hmm. Can I look for evidence of intentionality behind it? Is it just incompetence and stupidity? I mean, there's, it allows us all of a sudden to sort of analyze in a broader context, what exactly is going on and to hone in where the actual lie is taking place. And then yep. we can maybe backwards engineer as to like, well, if it's taking place in this capacity with this context, maybe this relates over here. Maybe there's a larger agenda behind it. And, you know, or maybe there isn't, but we can sort of ask those bigger questions. We can now really engage with our logical mind in regards to research, which is a lot of how Rich does research. And, yeah, and sure. it gives people the confidence to know, like, you aren't you don't reliant on me to tell you how to do this. You're not reliant on a teacher to tell you how to do this. I'm giving you the tools to develop your own mind to do it for yourself. That's what Gino Denning taught me. And that's ultimately, I think, the most important um, quality, most important aspect or property I would communicate is that this is not me lecture. Yes, I'm lecturing, but I'm trying to lecture you to understand the, the sort of systematic understanding of how your mind works so you mm -hmm. can use it to your fullest advantage without my input, without the input of an authority anywhere else. And yeah. that you can have the confidence to know for sure that you're, you're, sort of aligned with reality and the way you're using language and the way you're you're arguing for anything yeah totally and and so that reminds me i've heard david ike talk about uh the like he's talking about like subliminal advertising oh yeah he, he refer he references like you know there was like this old coca-cola advertisement in a magazine where they had like the word sex written in an ice cube and it's like you're staring at the advertisement and it's just to you it just looks like a glass of uh coca-cola with some ice cubes but then once somebody points out that there's the word sex right there the next time you see it that's the only thing you see 
like before it was hidden and invisible, but now that's the only thing that stands out. And so it's like, for me, like going through and learning some of these fallacies, for example, I'll read an article or see some news broadcast. And it's like, immediately it just jumps off the page. It's like, Oh, well, I know exactly what this is. Like, for example, it'll say like, like experts say, blah, 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 fill in the blank. Right. And then we, I know how oh, that's ad vericundium that's appeal to authority. And then you go into the article and there's no link to any study. There's no link to anything. If anything, it's like a, it's like circular logic. It'll give you a link back to some other, like New York, like a New York times article, giving you a link to another New York times article. Like, <laughs> right. It's just like, there's no meat there. There's nothing there. It's just sending you down like this, uh, this wandering path that doesn't actually give you any information other than the logical fallacy that's just in the title. You know what I mean? It's just like, they're everywhere. It's we're just, we're just under vicious attack everywhere. Yeah. Think about it. When they, when you say experts say you're, you're essentially capitulating your own understanding. You're saying there's someone who has some sort of knowledge that that's beyond my own. And that's, that may be true, but that doesn't empower you in any way that this, that actually leaves you in a very disempowered state. That's actually an old quote from Terrence McKenna. It's mm -hmm. like, what, what good is it for some quantum theorist in some realm to understand the equations of quantum? How does that impact your reality? And how does that like empower or disempower you? It's like, it's really about you. How do you, like, what, what do you feel or experience when you're having sex or, or you're at a party or with your friends or with family or in a religious environment? Like those are what's real, not like the sort of the contrivances of authority that are trying to dictate how you should or shouldn't experience what you are experiencing. And I think that's that that's an important and I'm glad you, you even called it up. So you didn't there you go. Your there, yeah. Yeah. You're learning. That's it, yeah. Learning. It feels good. It feels good. All right. I got I got a few more a couple more questions here. You still good for maybe oh, yeah, yeah. half hour or so, maybe? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, so let's see here. So Okay. One of the things I was really curious about, like you hear a lot of people say, um, and I've said this too, you know, I've said like my truth, this is my truth. You know what I mean? Like, like, um, do you find that that checks out with what we're trying to do here? And like the overall view of logic, like my truth, like, is, is, is there such a thing as my truth versus what exists without my, you know, opinion, like per se. Um, but how do you reconcile, reconcile the idea of like, this is my truth, you know? Yeah, that's a classic in philosophy. So that gets to, essentially an epistemological um this gets to so in, in in the history of philosophy the thing this the subject of philosophy it's been most attacked has been epistemology fancy word for meaning it's the theory of knowledge mm -hmm. how do we know what we know what's what's our the role of the senses and our perception what's the role of our ability to form a concept uh through the process of abstraction what's the role of psychology and behavior and that's the even behaviorism would play a role here. Logic is like a subset of epistemology is a bunch of different things that make up this intense subject. So when people say my truth, they're essentially saying that truth then is relative, relative to just my perspective. And that means they're relative to only my subjective viewpoint. There is no essential universal understanding. Like we can't communicate that that's a a human that's a rock this is a microphone there's no essential universal understanding that which makes it truly unique and that which we can communicate to other people that makes it the same thing irregard and and, and in contrast to all the other things that exist that's the uh, relates to a, a deeper concept in philosophy called uh well it's it's actually more of a it's i hate the name of this but they call it the war of universals or the problem of universals or a whole bunch of different terms for this but it gets to the heart of our ability to form a concept and whether or not there's any such thing as a universal truth, a reality that we experience and whether or not that's knowable. And there are many different perspectives on this going from Plato to 
um, uh, William of Ockham, which came up with the theory of nominalism, which is sort of what we're suffering under today. Then Aristotle took a middle position that said, uh, you know, that there universals are real in the sense that we abstract them in the mind for purposes of communication and that uh, we can come to know the true essence or nature of things. Um, just by that process of experiencing our world and forming a concept and that we can communicate that. For example, human beings being a rational animal, I can communicate the fact that regardless of all the things we share in common with all the other animals, the one thing that is truly unique to human is our conceptual capacity, our ability for reason and logic and language. And that is truly, truly unique to what's uh, part of an, what makes us uh, essentially a universal, what is truly unique for our category our class of existence our uh, human being that's what makes us truly unique and compared to all the other animals same thing with the properties such as uh you know the biological property of death death is a universal for all biological entities right just as much as life is a universal for existing in a, in a universe so these are these are categories that we abstract to from experiencing the for our, our world and forming a sort of universal and inexorable a, a concept that lasts over the span of time that that doesn't subject to the vicissitudes of change and and uh, uh, sort of dissolution of form and stuff like that. I think the key thing to understand is that uh, this in that capacity then allows us to understand and know truth. Aristotle would argue that, for example, um, truth is that which. Uh, it's called the correspondence theory of truth. And please don't confuse this with Hegel. If for anyone that's a okay. philosophy major out there, I know Hegel has his correspondence theory of truth as well. Aristotle's correspondence, correspondence theory of truth is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. In reality, we know through a process of perception and conception. Conception forms a universal. And by the way, when we form a concept and part of a concept is abstracting to a universal, that doesn't mean we're always going to be right. That, you know, sure. like that's why we have to have discussion. That's why we have to have science. That's why we have to have experimentation. That's why we have to compare and contrast with other people's perspectives to see maybe I'm a little bit off. Obviously, we have a little bit of a difference in how we all perceive, even though we all share in the same perceptual capacities. And we, it's important to understand where to remove what they call accidental properties. For example, height, weight, sex, ethnicity. These, these are accidental properties of being human. Yes, they're function of being human, but they aren't what makes us human. They aren't what makes us truly human. What makes us truly human is essentially our capacity for reason and, and conceptual consciousness. And so unfortunately, a lot through history is we've appropriated accidental properties as being essential components. And then people attack that and be like, look, that's not actually part of the category of what you're trying to argue as a class of things, whether it's plants or yeah. animals or rocks or whatever planets, it could be anything. And they use that to show the relativity of knowledge. And that's doesn't show the relativity knowledge just means that we're wrong. The fact that we can be wrong presupposes that then we could be right about something that there might there's a truth that is to some degree knowable. Now, whether or not we can know the ultimate truth, that's a bigger debate. And that that gets in the realms of theology that gets in the sure. realms of really intense, deeper metaphysics that I'd like to explore. And I'm more than willing to explore that. But for purposes of pra pragmatic utility, um, let's, let's reserve the those more yeah. lofty conversations and get back to something a little bit more tangible and real. Yeah, definitely. And, and it reminds me of like, I heard you say that, um, you know, the, the idea of like formal debate back in the day mm -hmm. used to be with the end goal being, well, let's find, let's get closer to the truth. You know, like we're debating, but we're exchanging ideas with the hopes that if we get to the truth, everybody wins. And it's nowadays it's all about like each side trying to prove they're right. 
and outprove the the or just just basically be right at the other person's expense, right? And and at the end, yeah. nobody wins, right? That that's that's kind of where we're at today. Whereas before, it was more about well, let's find the actual truth. Like yes, we're debating topics and can be very heated and adversarial, but but we're still moving closer to the truth, you know. It's an interesting artifact from history. This comes from the scholastic era. So in the scholastic era, this would have been sort of the reign of the, the intellectual milieu of the Catholic Church and the monks and the priests and those privy to have an education at that time. Um, in fact, the trivium sort of came into fruition around the ninth century. And this would have been Alcuin of York at the court of Charlemagne. So this would have been the Holy Roman Empire. And he set up the palace school, for example. Um, and part of and he this is where he utilized the classical trivium in fact i think he's the one who came up with the term the trivium in order to utilize these ancient arts from antiquity that was used in the greek city-states and maybe even preceded them and uh you know and obviously was used in uh roman civics as well roman education systems during the roman empire it's the big during the hellenistic era after the alexander the great but i'll never forget during the scholastic era the scholastics were obsessed with aristotle they loved deduction they, they were so obsessed, they named um, they named a type of deductive arguments like Barbara, which you, you qualify deductive arguments based on the premise. I won't get into that now, but they they were really pedantic. They were a little bit obsessed, a little crazy. It's funny because you couldn't question what's called revealed theology. So you couldn't question the nature of the church. But the church, thanks to St. Thomas Aquinas, did allow for this space. And it was thanks to Thomas Aquinas saying, Revealed faith is, that's always, you cannot touch that. But there's the natural, um, I forget what he is, the sort of knowledge from revelation and the knowledge from the natural world. And knowledge, when he separated the two types of knowledge, that allowed for the scholastics and people essentially privy to the church to really explore the realm of natural science, of logic, and these sorts of, these sorts of things. And in that milieu arose a tradition of debate. And in mm -hmm. that debate, it was more about it was very systematic, like, again, because they were so obsessed with deduction, naming all the various arguments. They called this out in the middle of the debate. You're having an invalid argument. You use this type of these types of propositions. Really weird. Um, but they're obsessed. And I appreciate that. So, like, there's always every in every culture a taboo. And that in that in that situation, the taboo is, well, we can't talk about or question the precepts of the church. You know, OK, that's mm -hmm. fine. But we can debate about all these other things. And part of debate was essentially it was almost an exercise in the use of this new tool they were coming into understanding because Aristotle was not well known. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas was really one of the first ones to gain access to translations, thanks to his mentor, uh, Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus. And um, so he, he had a unique position. Uh, and for scholastics, for those privy to have education back in those days, this would have been like the 13th century. Uh, they really took serious the, the systematic sort of methodology of utilizing logic. So it, it was in a way almost a game, I sense, in a way they were utilizing it. Hence why I think they were so okay with just allowing debate to exist in a space where as long as you didn't question the church, it had nothing to do with winning either side. It was actually about using logic really consistently, which ironically allowed everyone to move closer to the truth. And so there is a benefit to to uh, a massive benefit debate. In fact, the whole point of the debate wasn't to uphold the ego individual, the egos of the individuals debating. It was actually to get to this uh, point of truth. Now, in classical debate, this is still somewhat, when I was part of 
of uh, I was never part of debate club, but my friends were and they would come in. And this was part of the debate club when they were in school is they were always given topics they weren't they didn't agree with or they had to argue. Uh, so they, it was weird because they a lot of times they got things they just didn't want to deal with things they didn't agree with uh, arguments that um, uh, for or arguments for things they agree with that they have to argue against things like that. And so to have to sit there and present, be in a situation where you have to steel man your own argument or things you want to believe or argue against it, you know, allows you to sort of let go of our emotional sort of attachment to the ideas we want to hold on to and be a little bit more open to just exploring it objectively, dispassionately and personally. So we don't get so emotionally invested in the idea. So some elements of this remain, but certainly not in public discourse. If you a podcasting sphere like the Joe Rogan sphere, I mean, he's tried, but those have been those are a great example of how sophistry, how propaganda, how the like uh, individuals oftentimes are trained, like they get indivi- they get um, essentially um, coaches, rhetorical coaches. That's the classic. That was what they did in ancient Greece in the fifth century. The, the, the sophists. They taught rhetoric and only rhetoric, how to present yourself, not how to be logical and not how to get to truth, how to win, how to position yourself as though you're dominating your opponent. And that's really what it's about. It's about dominating to position yourself as though you look better or worse. I see this all the time. Uh, uh, most recent one I can think of was when Crowder had the H3H through the Ethan Klein little thing they were going mm-hmm. back and forth with. And it was so deceptive because you can see the echo chambers on both sides. Sure. Um, they wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. No debate took place, but then it wasn't an on, honest debate or attempted at a debate to begin with. And people are sort of, I think, part of the cybernetic agenda caught in their echo chambers where they want to. We're so obsessed with our ego identity and consciousness that we're not paying attention to the debate anymore. We're paying attention to the caricatures and the personalities behind the debate and seeing who won as though it's like a sports team who won. And like mm-hmm. it's posturing over his defeated enemy, something like that. So it's a very egotistical, almost maniac, megalomaniacal sort of situation it's turned into, which is really tragic. But yeah. that's also a part and function of the divide we're experiencing in our culture, where we no longer have a sort of a tacit, even agreement of like a base level to reality. It's really frustrating that I can't even appeal to. You know, back 40, 50 years ago, uh, it wasn't a, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or independent, didn't matter. Like gender wasn't, a, you know, everyone just assumed that there are certain universal truths in biology and the, in the realm of nature and the realm of physics. These weren't up for debate. Like, yes, maybe the ultimate truths of knowing every single constituent of what makes up a universe. Maybe. I don't know. That may be outside the realm of human knowledge. We'll have to see. But at least we could appeal to some basic pragmatic ground of reality. Hey, like I'm a human, you're a human, we use language and like we have different beliefs, you know, we have different perspectives, but we can at least agree that like we share a reality together. We don't even agree on that anymore. Oh, and that's no. that's part of the divide and conquer. And that is actually, I think, prepping us for the transhumanism totally. goal of, of, of separating us from a sense of reality. So we're willing to give in to artificial realities. Yeah, I completely agree with that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you, man. That was a really good one. Um, so let me see here. So I got two more questions. So, uh, okay. So one of the things that we've seen in particular with the whole COVID situation, and I feel like this is a, again, a part of the divide and conquer. Um, and I feel like so many well wedge issues, I guess you could say, you know, whether it's like gun control, abortion, like they put out enough information on either side to very, to construct very good arguments on either side, you know, oh, yeah. especially like with the COVID situation, right. You, you know, 
we had a whole bunch of evidence that we were able to present to uphold our, our stance. They had a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of evidence on their side to hold uphold their stance. Also, you know what I mean, so how do you reconcile when you have like any suggestions for discernment when you're up against two sides with an abundance of information and how do you sort through that? It's like, it's almost like, you know, oh man, for us, it's almost really easy because it's like, okay, whatever CNN saying, whatever the white house is saying, you can automatically just say that that's a bunch of bullshit. Right. But <laughs> is that taking it a step too far? Like what, what are some, what is yeah. some advice that you would have for discernment in an era where, uh, it's just like an information war. It literally is an information war. Like what, what is your, what is your uh, suggestions for discernment in this type of battlefield? It's interesting because this is where logic is an art and not a science. And this is something that throws people through a loop. Um, there's this very unfortunate caricature of philosophy and particularly of logic. Thanks to, I think the austere and sort of placid and very sort of black and white portrayal of logic in regards to um, Gene Roddenberry's uh, Star Trek and his character Spock. And, you know, there's always this interplay between intuition and emotion between Captain Kirk and then obviously um, uh, his subordinate psychic in the regards uh, uh, Spock. And Spock sort of represented that sort of cold, austere, sort of very cut and dry, uh, black and white type of logical analysis. And that's not what logic is. Um, that's a very, that's a computer. That's not logic. And we are not computers. Um, that's the interesting thing. I think people sort of have this false equivalency when they try to understand what logic is. And it, it's because logic, the term itself has been redefined in the 20th century to mean something quite different. It really does mean something that would be more akin to a computer. Symbolic logic, it'd be more akin to a computer language, which has no recognition of the ability to conceive based on a process of abstraction abstraction uh, to a universal, which helps us form a concept. This process is immaterial. There's no the measurement behind it. You can't crack open the brain and find a concept. These, this is a sort of spiritual or immaterial process. And so this is a this is a problem for especially the materialists and the hard empiricists and all this sort of stuff and the positivists. Um, but going back to your question, Art is a lot. So art is both a science in regards to a systematic conceptual understanding of what makes it up. What are the fallacies? What is definition? These sorts of, you know, de, you know how and what are the properties that make up these subjects? But then there's an art to how one uses logic. And this is very interesting because this and engineers that have taken my course and have taken my mentors or make take it when my mentor used to teach. Uh, he used to talk about some engineers that come into his course as well. I always find it interesting. The programmers love deduction. It's a, mm -hmm. it's like doing mathematics or algebra, like linear equations. You know, you, it's a, uh, you want to get one side to equal the other kind of, it kind of feel, has that feeling. You can kind of use that as an analogy, right? There's that sort of consistency behind it. Um, but it's not, once you get out of the realm of deduction, it comes up to your own discernment, your own judgment and judgment. Unfortunately, if you think about it right now, it's up to exactly as you said, we're in a situation, a milieu, a zeitgeist, whatever word one, one wants to use, where there's too much information, there's information overload. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, you have to make a judgment. You have to make a discernment, sermon, judgment here, synonyms, same, really the same thing, uh, about your conclusions. And that's really difficult to do. In an environment like this, it is so difficult to be able to parse between the good data and the bad data and or what might be good about something, because some data can... Some studies can be both good and bad, which is frustrating. Yeah. It's such a problem. And so in this milieu, 
there is something where I have to state, it's actually part of an uh, informal fallacy called adding neurantium. But it's up to the authorities that have positions of specialization to present evidence for why something is the way it is. And if they're not presenting evidence and relying just on their stature as an authority, that would be ad veracundium. Mm -hmm. If they're providing evidence, they should be able to provide the evidence in a way that's intelligible for individuals. If they can't pre present it in everyday common language, that's that's part of essentially um, ad veracundium that are using special, uh, what's the graduated language is a term for it, but they're using special specialized language on purpose to confuse and obfuscate, essentially. Uh, the number one thing is if they can't explain the phenomena in, in very simple terms, very straightforward uh, arguments where they present evidence, then the negative always holds the field, meaning that unless they present evidence for the positive, then you have the right to hold back until they, they can. And for in this capacity, I would say the problem has come to the point where there's so much good evidence, arguably, on both sides that it actually is, should be completely up to the individual as to what how they will engage with the reality of COVID, whether they believe it exists, whether whether and if they believe it exists, how severe it is or is not, the the issues of the vaccine, the issues of ivermectin and other potential therapeutics in contrast to the vaccine. There's so much evidence for and against all of these positions. It truly, this is why one public discourse and debate was so important. They shut it down because that debate could have helped hone people to the truth of the matter, which oftentimes yep. will be somewhat more in the middle, not always, but sometimes more in the middle. Um, oftentimes this happens to be, and it would have helped people have more confidence to understand that these are really complex situations. It's an evolving landscape of a very complex epidemiological understanding, meaning like it's going to take years and years to understand the fallout of what we're experiencing in regards to the truth and the falsehood and how much has been manipulated on top of that. Then there's institutional manipulation because we can't we can't ignore the fact of what's going what Pfizer did, what Moderna did, what NIH did um, in regards to supporting the certain um, studies and the you know, relative risk versus actual risk and all the, you know, the, the the cohorts that were a part of these studies, the the issues of the 90 days in regards to adverse reactions and adverse events, you know, so. Then there is an issue of like, can we even trust what's being presented? And that's where in that milieu, well, I'll never forget the contradictions started emerging tremendously. On one side, we had all the, the data emerging in America was nothing but the vaccines a miracle. COVID's like the worst thing ever. And if you don't do what we say, you're everyone's going to die. Essentially, I'm being uh, uh, hyperbolic. But then we got data from countries in Europe. And that was devastating because there's that, that like we're talking about nationally published data from uh, countries. I think it was uh, somewhere in the um, uh, the British Isles first published. I think it was Ireland or Scotland. And then they took it down. Um, Denmark had some interesting studies. Sweden had some interesting, interesting studies. Japan, interestingly enough, had some studies. South Africa. And these were sponsored by the government, most of which had now been scrubbed, um, but were preserved by individuals when they were first published on government websites to say, no, there's a number of adverse reactions. People are getting covid you know, there's a lot of contradictions to what's being stated. And when we notice contradictions, my first thing is take a step back. Let's take a step back. Let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not, you know, because right now the narrative was COVID's the worst thing ever. And if we all don't mask and go get the vaccine and, you know, follow what the government says to do, you know, we're either terrible people or we're going to 
continue to perpetuate the pandemic and all this other nonsense. But yet there's all these contradictions with people's experiences, people's experiences with getting COVID, people's experiences um, with those who maybe have gotten the shot and experienced adverse reactions or maybe, um, you know, uh, anything in between in regards to that sort of thing. And I think in that milieu, the contradictions, once they become that conspicuous, it's OK to make a judgment and say, I don't know. It's okay to actually use those words. In fact, that's the most logical judgment one can make is to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And what, what I can fall back on is what, what, how much objective evidence can I gather to make any conclusion at all? And the only conclusion I can make is that there are too many contradictions about the, the narrative that has to do with COVID, the origins, the nature of the disease, the nature of the vaccines for me to ever uh, be able to believe, unfortunately, the the supposed evidence that's being supplied to me by the mainstream media. On top of that, then I'm seeing contradictions from seemingly from government published reports across the world that mm-hmm. is in complete contradiction. So in that milieu, it's OK to say, I don't know. And that will that might be the most logical conclusion one can make. And that will hopefully give you some apprehension to make sure you don't fall into the traps of then giving into the the narrative of what's going on. That doesn't, I think what one of my lamentations and being an alternative media is people too often, because it's so obvious how much, how, how much the media is lying to us, how much conflicts of interest exist in that sphere to immediately jump to the most extreme conclusion in the alternative sphere. And I really try to press back against that. It's okay to be in a state where we just don't know because we're still trying to gather all the information. And in that state, we should actually be uh, skeptical and conservative in the way we conservative in the sense of the way we approach how we act on COVID and, and then the narratives that are being perpetuated around COVID. And I suggest that people don't just jump to the most extreme alternative, but at the same time, obviously you can clearly see evidence for collusion, contradictions, um, conflicts of interest in regards to the data is holding up the, 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 the side that wants to say the, the mainstream sort of narrative around it. But it doesn't mean that every alternative narrative has been correct either. And so yeah. you really have to use discernment and it's okay to be, you know, I don't know. It's okay to give time to allow the evidence to come in. You don't have to take action. That's the number one thing. You can just, you can, you can have the confidence to know that there's too much going on. There's too much data and we're going to need some time to parse through it all because unfortunately we can't know everything at once. And it takes a long time uh, especially with how much human manipulation, lying, uh, deceit that has been happening for us to parse through and remove all the lies. Look at what Richard's done. Richard's taken, it's taken him 20 years of research um, to essentially have to backwards engineer all of the lies, the deceit, the propaganda of history in order to get to an assemblance of like what actually happened. Hell, just within the past 200 years of my history to get to this point now. Yeah. And, you know, it takes a lot of time. It's okay to it's okay to be in a state where the judgment is to not know and to not take action until you have more evidence and more information available to you. That's the number one thing. You don't have to take action until you have more evidence and you should, the evidence should make sense to you and should be able to be communicated to you in a way that is uh, intelligible. If it isn't, then it's being purposely obfuscating in order to create a power gap and a power gap, knowledge gap, or to create a knowledge gap and knowledge gap creates a power gap and the power gap leads to tyranny. Oof! There you go, right there, man. That's that's intense. And you know, I think the mainstream media also uh, exists really to set the like seed the narrative right away. That's such oh, a yeah. powerful tool that they have. Like it's like immediately within 
10 minutes. Oh, there's Osama bin Laden who paid 19 hijackers with box cutters. Like that's like within, within 20 minutes. Right. Or it's like, you know, every, every shooting it's like, okay, it's like this kid all by himself, blah, blah, blah. You know, before the information is there, like they set the stage and that's the narrative from then on. And then if you say anything against that, then you're a crazy conspiracy theorist that doesn't deserve basic human rights, you know? So yeah, just, and that's just the thing. Humans sort of act heuristically, right. It's yeah. sort of like, we kind of want to jump to that. We get it. So we experience a trauma. And we want immediate resolution to the to the distension that we're feeling, right? And so the media does a good job of it's almost like uh, listening to jazz. I love jazz, but you know, tension resolution, tension resolution. They're sort of playing this Hegelian dialectic in a way. Um, but in that process of playing it, the the space between stimulus and response is being squeezed thinner and yeah. thinner to the point where it doesn't exist. And all we're doing is becoming essentially mass formation automatons. Yeah. And it's tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we we didn't quite get too many. We kind of danced around the logical fallacies, the informal fallacies involved. And I want to suggest everybody, everybody, everybody out there, 10 bucks a month, Grand Theft World community, like you can jump in and take the logic course. Like it's like 30 hours or something like that. And it's just like just this massive amount of information. It's just so useful. And that's just one thing that you get being a member there, not, not to mention all the community and everything. So if you want more logical fallacies, please, please, please go check it out. I can't recommend it enough. You know what I mean? Uh, but like on the on the topic of of just logical fallacies, just real real quick, you you describe and and this makes a lot of sense. So like the logical fallacies, trying to figure out what they are, how they're being implemented. Like I've heard you describe them as anything that takes you away from evidence. Now yeah. we, when we talk about some of these fallacies, like the idea of like ad hominem, that's probably something that most people can understand. Like your your mm -hmm. assertion is false because you're fat and ugly, right? It's just like attacking, <laughs> attacking the person saying it rather than the actual argument. So anytime we're using any sort of argument or anything that takes us away or distracts us from or is used in place of evidence we know we're in the land of logical fallacies so the question being um you know once we start to have an understanding like let's say i i know i can name off all of these uh you know ad hominem ad vericonium you know i can go down the list and start naming these and i start to recognize them in my daily life and i know that this is probably the question that you've been asked the most out of anything but uh, but but just to kind of like like kind of tease where, where get folks interested even more. But like, how do I know if somebody is deliberately using these against me? If someone's deliberately lying to me versus just being stupid? What is a way to discern that? And I know, I know, but I just I gotta ask. <laughs> no, that's a good question, and so, hey, it's probably it's a really good question because it's the question I was probably asked the most during my my logic course. Exactly, or, I know. I know. <laughs> And it's, you know, I would actually encourage people to check out the course if they okay. get the opportunity. And the reason why I would say that is because what happened was we ended up having a very enriching dialectic or dialogue around it where it's not easy to discern. But I come up with some basic principles, techniques, heuristics, whoever one wants, whatever terminology one wants to apply to it that they can sort of utilize to try to understand when someone may or may not be lying to them. My thing is I always immediately go to the individual's connections, uh, which can be also part of a fallacy called poisoning the well. It's an ad, a mode of ad hominem. I won't get into it, but I try to see is, is it possible that the individual that's lying to me, could they have been given or have been had access to knowledge that would contradict the premises they're stating? Um, and that to me is like, uh, who was it? It was uh, Ned. Oh, I forget his name. Ned, uh, he was the one who did the whole, we're, you know, we have all the evidence for the Russian invasion and mm -hmm. Russia's going to invade. 
well, where's the evidence? Well, I just said, I just said we that Russia's going to invade, but he didn't present the evidence because he went and got into a circular argument, right? Well, clearly he's, I think we can uh, be privy to the fact that he was aware that that's propaganda from the basis on the fact that he kept referring to that he had evidence that he's unwilling to share. Mm. So it's like, you know, in that capacity, someone's not telling you something. Like he's actually admitting to being privy to something he's not willing to share. That's sketchy, right? So like in that capacity, it's pretty obvious he's lying. Um, Ned Price, I think that's- Ned Price, yeah, 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 that yeah. dude, yeah, the one where it's like, you guys might remember this, it was fairly recently where he's like, mm -hmm. you know, there's a Ukraine, or there's a Russian false flag imminent. Yes. And they're like, okay, well, where's your evidence for that? Well, I, I just told you. I mean, this is the evidence, right? It's like, dude. Yeah, that, that was classic. That's yeah. amazing. And that, and so what I tell people, let's see if, try to see if you can find if the individual that is using a fallacy and try to see if they may have had the possibility of having the evidence or information presented before them that would contradict their position. In other words, they're aware of the, they're holding a contradictory perspective. And if you can find direct evidence for it, then you'll know they're they're quite literally lying. But if you can at least find some circumstantial evidence, you can at least um, sort of, uh, you know, hypothesize to the, at least to come up or at least uh, come up sort of to an inductive probabilistic conclusion that, hey, it's probable that they might be lying to me and I need to be skeptical. And that would not be illogical in any way. Um, so I think that's it's not easy. That That's a hard one. And I think oftentimes my mentor would state most people are using fallacies out of lazy thinking. They just haven't thought their thought their ideas the whole way through. They really haven't analyzed it from every angle. And they just don't understand fully what's going on. And that's okay. That's a lot of our friends. That's a lot of our families. That's our coworkers. That's that's you know, the guy at the bar, you, you know, where you're having a beer and just talking about politics. It's that it's that sort of stuff. But then there are those who get paid to lie. There mm -hmm. are the Francis Collins, there are the Dr. Fauci's. Yeah. And Dr. Fauci clearly based on his own emails, for example, he's aware, oh, shit, this uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, this is a problem. Oh, wait, they're questioning this? This is a problem. Oh, Peter Daszak? Oh, we funded? Oh, that's a problem. You know, can we can we nip this whole, you know, um, uh, lab leak theory in the bud real quick? Oh, I'll give you some money. Like, when you see those machinations behind the scenes, and you can see him actually addressing this, but then acting as though, you know, that was not something they that was not something they addressed behind the scenes, even though they did. It can be fairly with that evidence can be pretty fairly certain that uh, those individuals are lying to you. In fact, in this capacity, they actually quite literally said they are because the individuals that he, the epidemiologist and virologist he was talking to were like, no, nah, this looks like 60% lab leak. And this is early on. And he's like, Oh no, we got to, you know, uh, you know, make sure we publish that paper. I forget which, journal was in but a famous one that did you know said no no it's zoonotic origin nothing to see here cool so, cool and that's that's a that, that's the always thing so real quick it always come fallacies always come down to whether someone is presenting or not presenting evidence not presenting evidence they're they're essentially committing a fallacy and there's a zillion names and zillion the yeah. different types of fallacy it really has to do with not presenting evidence and on top of that if someone's not presenting evidence and lying to you i would then try to find evidence that they may have been available may may know the their position is contradictory and know what the real position is and if you can't find that then it's reasonable to sort of say i don't really know but i know he's lying and that i should be skeptical of how i interact with them but doesn't mean i have to always throw the baby out with the bathwater. and that's nuance that's nuance to discernment and judgment that i try so hard to develop in individuals minds it's it's everything is not as 
yes, there are situations that are black and white. There's also a lot of situations that are shades of gray, and we need to know the difference between the two and be able to have nuance and understanding to our perspective. Because this is a complex world, a lot of complex ideas, a lot of, and human behavior is very dynamic and complex. And so it's not always easy just to, to paint very black and white uh, perspectives of what's going on. Yeah, totally. And then, and then also for me, you know, it, it helps me raise my standard of like information I put out too. Like if I, if I find myself slipping in some of these things, it's like, no, I got to be better. Got to do better, you know? And so it's, it's just an all around useful, extremely useful tool. Well, shoot, Tony, man. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me, dude. Like this has been, uh, been one that get you on for a while. Um, I'll definitely come make a concerted effort to join the Tuesday night, uh, town hall a little more often, but man, like I said, Tuesdays are just rough for me, but um, something that we didn't quite get into, but I just like, as we're wrapping up here, maybe we can shout out real quick. I know you also, or I'll show people here. So I need to add this to the episode description, but, um, if you guys go to the grand theft world website, if you scroll down a little bit, you're going to see the autonomy Agora marketplace. And if you go down and you go in there and you scroll down a little bit further, you're going to see Tony's trivium method course mm -hmm. here. So can you just give us a quick, uh, rundown about what people would expect if they're signed up for the trivium course? Yeah, the Trivium course is essentially the three subjects that make up a classical education system called the Trivium, uh, that they're in order. These three subjects are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Grammar is not the grammar you learn in school. That's sort of the metaphysical basis of reality and how we use uh, the names and terminology, and we apply that to reality and how the two we how there's an interrelationship between language and then reality and how we come to understand our reality. And so what I try to do is present a systematic understanding of what make up each of these three subjects that make up the trivium. So I get into all the properties and constituents that make up general grammar. Same with logic, like what would be a formal study of logic? Here's like what definition is, informal fallacies, formal fallacies, which I didn't even get into, deduction, induction. And I give a brief overview of what makes up these subjects, and then finally classical rhetoric, which again, I, I get into all the properties and constituents that make up these that subject. And so that's the goal. I sort of give a it's not a brief overview. It's pretty intense, but it gets into all of the sort of minutiae, if you will, sort of the, the the details of each subject and what you can expect if you were to just study each one as its own subject, which is then after I would encourage people to take that course and then go to a logic course. I, I suggest people get the foundations that will provide the sort of foundation foundations of philosophy and the foundations of a classical education system and then how that you could be used as a system to help. Uh, develop your mind and give you a greater sense of agency, confidence, and, and and knowledge about how you how language relates to reality and how you can be sure in your conclusions in regards to how you communicate phenomena you experience. So I think that's that's a good primer and overview. Then what logic is this the course I did on logic was really getting into the full subject of logic itself. And I hope to do that with rhetoric someday, but quite frankly, Benny Wills and even Rich have done a really good job there. And uh I, they don't necessarily present it totally classically, but they highlight a lot of the elements that classical rhetoric does. That, that's part of sort of a classical uh, rhetorical um, uh, understanding. So they do a great job there. I hope to maybe do that. And uh, general grammar, I think I do such a good job of on the trivium that I feel like that's sort of a self-contained subject in itself that people can get just out of the course. I may run a general grammar course at some point. But it's more abstract and metaphysical, if you will. It's more, it's a basis of philosophy uh, in, in a way. And so I actually, the Trivium course has one um, uh, prologue lecture, if you want to call it that. It's called a discussion on 
consciousness and cognition or cognition and consciousness, something like that, where I get into the foundations of consciousness and the understanding of the of consciousness and how it relates to our experience and how that relates to philosophy and the development of this educational system. So, you know, we get into mythology, we get into logical and reason analysis, and we get into the scientific method as parts of cognition, if you will. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, shoot. Well, I know we're kind of wrapping up here, but I did, I did have a couple of, uh, Rockfin super chat questions. If you have a moment, are you good? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. So this is from any word. He says, he asks, is Tony retracting flat earth being ridiculous yet? <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm you not. Haven't had, you haven't had enough evidence to convince you otherwise yet, huh? No, no. I have, uh, I've, I look, I've looked into, all sorts of crazy theories, uh, aliens, um, uh, and all varying various types. You know, we're talking about extra dimensional beings. We're talking about three dimensional forms. You know, I've, I've entertained the flat earth thing a long time ago just to see what it was about. I got into terrain theory, which I, I don't seem to be, I find to be untenable. Um, the, these are my conclusions, by the way, these yeah, are totally. my use of analysis and logic and reason. And I try to, pitted against as much evidence on both sides. And unfortunately, the evidence is wanting quite dramatically for the uh, the flat earth. Um, but that's good. That hey, is what it is. So due you know. diligence. That's great. That's great. You, you went down the rabbit hole and you're like, nope, not for me. No, I will say I always try to go down the rabbit hole. I did it with uh, yeah. train theory early on in the pandemic. I did it with flat earth at one point. Oh, yeah. I've done it with almost and there's a lot of nuance. I mean, there's a famous no, no, infamous debunker named mick west out there he runs metabunk.org and he he gets in a lot of this stuff and he's all over the place mick west but i always find it interesting right i want to i want to have him on the show i think we'd be we'd be good uh a rebunk versus debunk dude <laughs> hey he probably entertained it he's kind of that yeah. dude you know he's a little yeah. bit of, he, he has that in him but yeah. he uh his father apparently i found this interesting was a part of the flat earth society wow. and it wasn't because his father believed in the flat earth if i remember correctly i hope Mick or Mr. West, if I'm messing up this, it's a confabulation of my memory. Please forgive me. I'm pretty sure I remember as part of somewhere on his Metabunk website, he mentioned his father is a part of Flat Earth okay. organization, whatever it was back in the early 20th century. Not because he believed in it, but because he believed you should always challenge your hypotheses. Yeah. You should always challenge your assumptions. Like we have a ton of evidence in support of a, a spherical Earth, technically oblong. Um, but, you know, we should always be challenging um, that supposition with new evidence and yeah. he did it as a hedge against making sure he doesn't become too ideologically possessed by his own belief that it's a of the shape of the earth being what it is okay. and so in other words it was a way to always go back to evidence always go back to evidence always go back to evidence obviously he believed his father believed in a, a spherical earth so that wasn't an issue but he always tried to make sure he appealed to evidence and to give the space and i think that's where mick gets his whole thing where he wants to give space to the other side and be respectful. It doesn't always end up that way, but he tries to create a space where he tries to be respectful to those individuals um, that, you know, hold extreme positions. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, great. Thanks, man. And so, so the next one is Mark Johnson. He is the the host of Manifest Freedom Festival in, in Malala, Oregon. Uh, that'll be the second annual one this year. He says, get this guy for Manifest, which I'm just throwing out there. I'm inviting a lot of people. We're doing a live stream panel discussion to the event and from the event. And so basically, though, it'll be audience participation. I've already talked to Stephanie. I sent an invite to you and LD and Richard. Richard. And so, you know, ask, uh, she's got all the info on that. But uh, Mark, Mark's the host. And so he's very impressed with what you had to say tonight. So thanks, Mark. No, thank and then you, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, Adis is the host of Modern Retro Radio. He says, you keep bringing it, brother. Thanks, Adis. All right, thank you guys for everything. So, Tony, 
please tell the listeners where they can continue to follow and get these awesome downloads of information from you and your team. Absolutely. It can go to grandtheftworld.com. And on the top right corner, I think there's a join community. Uh, you can hit that little join button and you can choose your donation tier uh, to, do to join. Um, and that would be the best way to gain access to the community, which gains access to myself. Also to Richard Grove, um, because we have a section inside the Discord server, as I know you're aware, Scott, where we have a questions for Richard and Tony, where a lot of people will leave questions, if not for myself, for Richard. And I always will. I'm sort of the liaison for people to get access to Richard that maybe don't have access to him that because you'll get direct access to him if you join the autonomy community in his course. But if you don't get that type of access, I can at least answer some basic questions about the topics that we present on the show. So I, I really encourage people that are interested in what we present and appreciate our perspective to join the community. And that way you'll gain more access to myself and to Richard and also to a, 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 a myriad number of like-minded individuals that are very erudite, well-researched. It's in itself yep. a research, a self-contained research community yep. of very intelligent individuals that are just trying to understand and, and the world around them and, and know truth as best as they can understand understand it and, and move forward with a greater sense of confidence about the reality of the experience. Yeah, that's perfect. And then if, um, if you guys just absolute nothing else, you have to watch grant Theft world or listen to it every week. I mean, that's just like the greatest, like I usually download and listen to it like maybe an hour, two hours throughout the week, you know, a day and kind of get the full download. And I know sometimes I don't make it all the way to the end, but I give it a good effort. So Great. One of the best shows out there. Absolutely. And a great red pill for people too. Like if you're looking for a good resource to share with other people to kind of get them up to speed, if you have that person in your life, that's just kind of like, yeah, maybe this is kind of a little bullshit. <laughs> like send them to grant that world, man. They'll, they'll, they'll ease them into this in a, in a very uh, friendly, entertaining and, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a great red pill. We try to keep it informal. It's chill. Yeah. You know, yeah. the other week we had to try to hijack our own stream and, yeah. uh, oh, and, you know, there's, and it, everyone was doing a great job this, you know, we go late and, you know, oh. so it was one of those things, but there's always a little hick. It's, I think if anything, we try to keep it personable. I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we did not do a good job earlier on, this is just my critique, but Rich sort of had an idea of, he wanted, he thought people just listen to the, or used to the sort of uh, perspective, the sort of, uh, what's the disposition of the mainstream media, the, mm -hmm. the way that the, the the, the the teleprompters the 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 suit and tie the you know the quick the quick hot takes the quick cuts all these sorts of things and truth be told is that's not what people were into so we tried to sort of model our initial productions based on that that understand but in fact what we, youtube found out is if you just have good mic and you put yourself up against a wall that's good enough and people actually are starving for long-form content they're starving for more meaningful content and i think it took us a long time to realize that like hey if we just strip it down make it more personal and just continue to do what we do in form in the form of just research and long-form discussion because it's sort of the stuff we were doing when we weren't live streaming this is sort of like a backdoor or a back oh, what's the word i'm looking for but sort of like yeah and so sort of backstage pass into yeah. what we were doing privately 10 12 years ago when i was actually living with them building the studio trying to do productions and sort of gives you a sense of like it's very organic we want to give people a sense of like no this this is friends getting together trying to understand their world just as you were just you know started a podcast just trying to rebunk what's been debunked you know it's just like you see pattern you're just like i gotta call this out i gotta i gotta say something about this so i think that's really powerful and um yeah. So in a way I've, I've, it's, it's been a ton of fun and I, I pre, I really appreciate the laid back, even though it goes on for six or seven hours, which, you know, I, that may be a turnoff, but I would suggest to people that if you're turned off by that, try 
listening through it, listening to it throughout a week. Yeah, like try exactly. using it as like a way to get the news for the week for or at least the past week, especially the news you might not have because we cover as many angles and as many topics as we possibly can in a seven hour span and present then books and history and um you know uh, rich and i talk about a whole bunch of different perspectives in regards to the these various working groups and i don't know it's just it's a lot of fun and there's a certainly a dynamic community on the rockfin that supports us and provides very interesting feedback as well as an incredible community on the discord server so beautiful yeah um give it space repetition allow your allow time to digest and i think a lot of people where they get the most value out of it is just using it as a long form sort of news analysis throughout the week and that way they don't get overwhelmed by it yeah best analysis out there i think you know if you're looking for like a big nuanced perspective on the full you know historical context and uh, all of the logical fallacies that are being deployed against you on a constant basis folks so all right tony thank you so much man for joining me make sure you guys go to grandtheftworld.com go to rebunk.news make sure you subscribe subscribe start a financially support value for value all that good stuff and we'll see you next time peace thank you scott Thank you. All right.